This episode is brought to you by Parades. Parades has always been your first choice for processions, cortèges, trains, reviews, or any other columnar spectacle for ritual exhibition. Whether you want to commemorate a historical event or celebrate an annual one, whether you want to flex your unity or flaunt your number of tanks, Parades has the accoutrement to outfit it properly. Are you planning a motorcade? They have everything from bulletproof Cadillacs to Popemobile personal bubbles. A cavalcade? They've got your horses and the corks to stop them up with. They have ridiculous motorized sets for your people to wave from or to show off their tatas in exchange for beaded necklaces. Check out their human-directed zeppelins shaped like comic book characters and product icons. Whatever the affair, Parades promises to bring the pomp to your circumstance. And use the promo code RERED, one word, to try out free their latest product, Marches. Whether you're outraged in an injustice or want to affect a change in public opinion, you'll need a march, complete with banners and crudely vandalized poster boards that libel and slander your opposition. And thank you, Parades, for sponsoring the Rereading Wolf podcast. This episode is brought to you by the support of generous listeners just like you. You can learn how to be one of them at patreon.com slash rereadingwolf. And thank you, listener patrons, for supporting the Rereading Wolf podcast. Warning. The following discussion is deliberately riddled with spoilers and unhinged speculation on this nearly 40-year-old book, Gene Wolfe's The Book of the New Sun. You can't read a Gene Wolfe story. You can only reread a Gene Wolfe story. Welcome to Rereading Wolf. We don't pretend that this is the first time you and we have read these books. We want to understand them in as much detail as possible, and that means considering the works as a whole. Hi, I'm James Wynn. And I'm Craig Brewer. Hey, Craig. Good morning, evening, time of day, whatever. Yes. How are you? <laughs> I'm actually uh, pretty good. Pretty good. good. Well, so... Um, Sad news. I, I can... Uh, yeah, we can definitely say that we are still not Hugo-nominated fan <laughs> But it'll be interesting to see how many, uh, what, maybe a dozen people might have voted for us in the end. So I don't know. Sometimes yeah. in the past, they've released the votes. And just to let you know how many were there, that's why we decided we'd try and do it. But it just ended up being apparently a really weird process this year because the Rollcon people kept delaying putting off, mm -hmm. putting the nominations out. So I don't know. We would talk for a while imagining, like, does that mean there's like a ton of Chinese entries that aren't translated right. and that's a problem? Apparently not. Like there's a few that, but the, everything seems to be translated. So yeah, I don't know. So maybe another time we could we could think about that. I don't I don't yeah. know if we're maybe yeah. I mean, we're certainly not going to be able to make it to Glasgow next year, so that's that's hard. Well, I, mean, well. I guess there's no. I guess there's never say <laughs> well, never. But, but. Well, the, the the issue is is that we want to go someplace where our people other are. people can. Go. Yes, <laughs> yeah. yes. So yeah, I mean, it, it's not like it's not like people in Glasgow don't listen to you know don't read wolf that's not the issue it's just that right just that we're less likely to put together another little mini wolf con right exactly let's go but yeah i don't know where it is the next year have they decided yet i i think they have decided but i don't know where it is but you know what we have the greatest listeners uh, here we we, we kind of we we leave them hanging for so long and then you know charles jenkins says hello gentlemen I, i'm just so thrilled that i have another dose of your work to enjoy and that is that's truly touching very uh, kind thank you yeah all right so you want to get in on these uh comments then yep let's do it so let's say uh on uh, reddit 
Christopher Taylor says, I think that when Hildegrin refers to himself as working so near, we were, I was asking, you know, what does he mean, him, him working near? Is he always mm-hmm. out here at the Stone Town? Why is she out here when she's supposed to be, you know, at the Garden of Sleep? Well, he thinks that when he says him working so near, that he what he means is that the Kamehian is at the Garden of Sleep, which is where his shop is, where he's working. And so he, he doesn't mean near to the Stone Town. And this is actually, uh, Adrian Tchaikovsky had the same point on Twitter that, no, 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 he's so near to her because he's near the, the commands in the Garden of Sleep. And I, I got to say, that actually makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. And the reason that they're coming out here to the Stone Town is because that's where, where Apupunchao is. Yep. So, the, yeah, they're, 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 they're hooking up. They've, they've arranged to meet out here. Yeah, yeah, gotcha. Christopher Taylor also thinks that when Hildegrin uh, says that the Kamehian is paying her debts, he means Eniri. But he also uh, thinks that Hildegrin is overestimating his own side's position. He says Hildegrin thinks that the Kamehian is primarily aligned with him and his mates and is only maintaining her connection with her opponents as insurance. But he lacks the insight to realize that things could well be the other way around. And also he points out uh, regarding the command, he has a, a cross-reference to Terry Pratchett's equal rights uh, because there's a, there's a scene there where death is looking at a cat and he's not limited in time. So he sees all the stages from newborn kitten to ancient uh, old cat uh, about to die. And then because this is Pratchett, the narrator describes the overall effect, he says, as looking like a white carrot. Mm-hmm. And he says, I've always felt that like something similar was supposed to be happening with Severian later when he sees the Kamehian like a multifaceted snake rather than him seeing the Kamehian's true literal form. Um, yeah, I'm not sure. What do you think? I, I think I used to believe that, but then reading it this time, I think it's more like a like there's a snake insider or something like that. So I know we're going to talk about that this time coming up pretty soon so right. and i've got i've got my ideas there that i yeah i don't think it is a reptile anymore i think it just looks reptilian but we'll talk about why we'll get to yeah that. yeah um also on reddit neil smith neil commenting on on dorcas when you know she says well the reason she didn't tell severian about the about the message from the the autark was she said well we hardly had any time alone and he says and, and i and i comment of course that well gosh they, they, it's been quite a while since then to say that they didn't have any time alone and they were actually actually sleeping outside the the uh, herdsman's hut uh, one time and uh, well neil smith ha- says he can think of two reasons why they would be the one is that most of the time, Jalenta was around, and she didn't want, she wanted to keep it away from uh, Jalenta. And the other, he thinks, is that she got the message when uh, Severian was off with Jalenta. Um, and so it was kind of painful for her. Now for, yeah, I can see that, you know, she didn't want to bring it up if, if it would bring up a lot of painful memories about uh, Severian and Jalenta. But still, uh, I think that I, I think... They could have talked about it, but, you know, 
I still had the others around. You know, she, what, what are you going to say? She didn't feel like talking about it. She didn't feel like giving him. She says that she felt like it was dangerous to uh, a thing yeah. to know and kind of protecting him. Right. Yeah. I think there is that side of it too. That's what, what she also says. So yeah, right, she, yeah, yeah. she might literally have had a, a chance to tell him, but I think she really didn't want to. Yeah, protecting Severian is something she does really a lot, actually, in this book. And uh, so, and that's probably the real reason. But so, uh, yeah, I mean, she says, well, we didn't have any time alone, but maybe she did. But there's, it's not a big betrayal or anything like that. She's maybe It's okay for her to be a little defensive. She does a lot for Severian. Let's uh, see. Um, what else? Uh, Neil Smith uh, thinks that the reference to Hildegrin being blitten by uh blood bats also uh notes is is kind of implying the fact that he's been off in the north with Vodalus fighting the battles right that's there that's where they are off well in be. the steaming jungles although obviously in in my opinion that's not the only place uh oh i get a little correction where did uh james come up with body parts were removed from her <laughs> you know i went back and look i don't it, I can only vaguely remember saying that. And yeah, I was probably just getting into it. It seems like something Talos would do, but you're right. It's not supported in the text. And that is something that is not allowed here. Thanks, Neil. Um, the uh, the two helpers uh, that, uh, that Hildegrin had that died, um, Wolf usually, he says, conserves details. So have we seen them or can we infer them? We haven't seen anyone die since uh, since Severian was with Vodalus, other than the Ulan, who got better. Uh, perhaps they were also watching Baldanders and Talos, but were killed because Baldanders and Talos didn't want to be watched. I, yeah, that's possible. Yeah, maybe they were. It's also, you know, it's, it's dangerous out north here, right? Even, even Jolenta <laughs> barely made it one night. So Yeah, could also be that this is, a sort of touchy secret, weird, mystical thing they're doing. So he just needed to do it on his own. Uh, yeah. Right. Well, I think if, if you've got the theory that, uh, Boldanders, that the whole point of, is that Hildegrin is being assassinated. Mm-hmm. Um, then you want, you need to eliminate all of the extra people around him. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I gotta, that's not my pet theory, but it's out there. Uh, also, um, He's really interested, as I am, in tracking how long it's been since Severian left the, the Citadel and how long it's been since his elevation ceremony. Um, he says, whether James is right or not about exactly 29 days passing since Severian left, it's certainly the case that everything is happening very quickly. I've commented before on the fact that no one, no common citizens anyway, seems to use a watch or calendar in this setting. So you never hear that something happened at 3 p.m. or on Tuesday or, you know, Febtober 30th or whatever. (laughs) Adding to that, Severian as narrator rarely reminds us of how many days have lapsed since this or that event. And you get a timeless fog, which is perhaps supposed to equally fog our senses of how many years from now this takes place. Uh, Compare Lord of the Rings, for example, 
where years pass in the first few chapters and dates are listed out and the author lets you know exactly how many months it takes to get from one place to another. Yeah, definitely. And Wolf in the appendix calls out like the last paragraph of the appendix, words indicative of duration seldom occur in the manuscripts. One sometimes intuits that the writer's sense of the passage of time and that of the society to which he belong has been dulled by dealings with intelligences who have been subjected to or have surmounted the Einsteinian time paradox. Yeah, he goes off <laughs> in some weird <laughs> thing like that, which I, I don't know if that's the most logical explanation. But yeah, I mean, he does point out, I mean, people do talk about way to watch or something like that, you know, or a few watches. But um, yeah, for the most part, it doesn't seem like there's a strong emphasis on particular times. Yeah, it could be just a, a culture um, for, for the very reason that Wolf gives. I've, I got to tell you, I didn't have a strong uh, idea about how uh, messed with this society had been with time travelers, but I have a very strong different uh, different idea about that. I feel like like they're nothing but oppressed by time, people from the past and people from the future. It could be. And you do and, with the green man. Yeah. Everyone is used to seeing green men. Yeah. And the one time when we literally do have a ton of it is the atrium of time where you have all the sundials that seem to Mm -hmm. you know not be being used very much so yeah there is something i guess pretty deliberate here about not not being clear about time yeah yeah well if they are sundials right maybe they're oh yeah they could be just devices that empower those tunnels you know yep also on reddit uh time chief 77 says very good episode love your podcasts been rereading this series for a long, long time. Probably could copy them out myself from memory. What really hooks me is the almost but not quite paranormal strangeness of certain key scenes and key ideas. Alton's library, the tunnels linking to the house absolute with the Citadel. The key is that Severian's point of view is so matter of fact, so chill. Man eating beast that absorbs your soul. No biggie. Plants that distort spatial perception. Oh, well. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. And there are all those times where, you know, some odd thing will happen and then the character will immediately go into, you know, the minutia of the step-by-step process by which, who knows, you know, you, you make a pot or whatever it is, but there's always something, some kind of thing like that, where, you know, when people explain things, they don't explain the seemingly inexplicable thing. They explain the thing that is very logical and makes sense. And that, that happens a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Mike Farrar. Your arms from me. Returns <laughs> to Reddit to uh, to defend his uh, Hildegrin assassination theory, and uh, yeah, uh, it's long, and he's got a lot of of, of defenses of it. But you know, he asks why is uh, Hildegrin so dangerous to the plan, and he says, you know, because he's smart and his eyes are open to Severian's true nature. Uh, when you guys covered the opening grave robbing and later Severian being kidnapped and brought to Vodalus, there was a lot of talk about whether Severian's time traveled to their initial meeting in the necropolis and whether the bodies uh, that they were exhuming was Thecla's. I'm a believer that both are true. So there's time travel in the opening chapters. Vodalus is saved by a goofy teen Severian and then a day or two later encounters the young men that Severian's claiming he was a boy who saved his life years ago. And Vodalus is puzzled, but seems to shrug it off because he's a putz. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah. Okay, well, this is kind of long, 
And it's a uh, it's a good theory. If you go to the uh, the Reddit um, to the Reddit post for the cleansing part one, you can find it there. And maybe maybe you should condense this one, uh, Mike. Uh, now you take in all of the questions and and all of the the doubting and deal with them one by one. This would be pretty cool. Um, and and I will link to it. Sure. So and also on Reddit, um, Mantis. Wants to talk about seance and sacrifice again. And he says, seance, he has that in quotations, moves it into the quote, no sacrifice necessary territory, making it seem like those red flags of sacrifice in the previous chapter were red herrings. Then again, when the thing starts, it looks more like a physical raising of the dead rather than just raising shades. And as I hope I've already established, Wolf consistently shows sacrifice before physical raising of the dead. Then again, I note the sacrifice comes before the physical raising of the dead as payment in advance. So that means Jalinta dying cannot be the payment after the fact, except to pay off all the textual red flags, lest they become rancid red herrings. (laughs) But then he goes on, and I think this is kind of uh, interesting. He says that on another topic, my sense is that while it seems as though the seance group is going back in time, in fact, they are drawing the city from the past into their time. Apu and company are traveling and the seance group is sitting still. As I understand the implosion explanation, this is why Apu implodes and Severian does not implode. One does not implode on one's home ground time frame. Well, this is very interesting. Um, I'm not sure that that one, that this last one holds up, Craig, because as we're going to see in this episode, Severian tells Syriaca that, or if strongly implies, that Apu is not a necromancer, but a vivimancer. He, the reason that they are all there summoning Apu Punchau is because he has, in a sense, summoned them to raise him up. So, Maybe they're on their home territory, or maybe they're being drawn into his. I'm not so sure it's it's obviously one way or the other. And it's weird, too, since especially Severian describes how sort of transparent everybody seems right after the thing starts. Yeah, I don't know. I, it's almost like a thing where I don't know that it's the kind of thing that happens where you go back to them or they come up to you, but instead there's just kind of mixing going on i don't i mean mm-hmm. i truly don't know and i i remember always being confused by and we'll talk about it in a minute but confused by the way it looks like the gnats or whatever all the pieces of things build the city around um and i, I always thought that was kind of like maybe that's just a weird way of talking about pixelation mm-hmm. so he could see something but but yeah i don't know i i just wonder if it really matters or if it's the kind of thing where it is somebody going to somebody else rather than just kind of happening at the same time. And I know that sounds weird, but I I don't know. I mean, it just seems like such a weird moment um, that I don't know. But it's true. We never actually see, like, what has to happen for Severian to come back to this time. Was it an mm-hmm. explosion? But then he still sees the other. Yeah, I mean, I I don't know. Uh, yeah, I... Um, I... I think Wolf is very interested in the uh, treating cause and 
effect subversively in mm-hmm. his narration. Uh, he does this. He uh, he actually has a reference to this in his uh, second uh, science. Well, actually, his first science fiction uh, story that he was that was published, Mountains Like Mice, and he seems to do it over and over and over again. And, and so I think this is is just as true. You, you know, my people were all raised on uh, on role-playing games and you have rules for everything and for why you're allowed and what's stipulated. Mm-hmm. And Wolf doesn't play that game. You can't, there, there are no necessary rules. No one can really explain. Uh, Ajia doesn't necessarily, even if she, even if she knows how to manipulate the um, botanic gardens, uh, more than anybody else because she spent so much time there. She doesn't really know how they work exactly. And yeah. I don't think it's ever really made clear how the um, how, how these time traveling stuff works, even in for in, in Neri's case, where he goes out, <laughs> goes a long way to try to explain how they work. Yeah. Um, I just don't... I, I know it sounds kind of crazy for me to be the one to say this, but I don't think that this is knowable. And I think that it is intentionally not knowable. Yeah, because then you start to get into that problem you have with science fiction where does the author actually have to know how the things would work if he's going to include them Mm -hmm. in his book, which we're, of course, talking about impossible things. So no matter what way he would explain time travel, probably wrong right it's gonna <laughs> have a plot, not gonna make sense it's gonna have some p- apparent plot holes time right. travel has <laughs> a, has has built in plot holes into everything you're gonna do yeah and so wolf has been actually pretty canny i think in dealing with it this way yeah it's all the suggestions just like you know wolf may have had some cool ideas about how an mirrors worked but it's not like he's actually figured it out I mean, maybe right. you think he's such a genius that yes, he did. He just didn't he have the has, money. He has those mirrors in his garage. He didn't, yeah, or he, he just didn't have the money to actually take it out, but he knew. <laughs> yeah. And also, you know, Ori Korsky isn't just on Reddit. He's also on Facebook and he leaves comments here on Facebook too, which I love and I encourage everyone to do that. <laughs> so he says, uh, I'm so glad that rereading Wolf is back after a bit of a pause, and I've enjoyed the past two episodes considerably. Oh, particularly as you and all the contributors have made me really intrigued by the witches, whom in the past I had thought had been made deliberately obscure because once their mystery was stripped away, they were basically B'nai Gesserit. Hmm. He says... It seems to me that back in their co-ed days, the tortures and witches were never just straight up jailers, but were instead entirely political. But when they were separated along gender lines, the tortures became the black sites of the Commonwealth, at, you know, used for interrogation, kidnapping, disappearing. And the witches became a sort of signals intelligence, which could have put them in contact with all sorts of otherworldly intelligences who could be contacted using non-Euclidean geometries. And he has, here's something really interesting. He says, I wonder if Wolf, in calling them the witches, was thinking of Keziah Mason from Lovecraft's Dreams of the Witch House, and that the hairless rats that Mother Superior was watching weren't humans. They were rather a host of brown Jenkins. Perhaps if Severian had listened intentionally to the wild screens coming from the witches, he'd have all of the all the shouts for uh, praise for Cthulhu as dreaming underneath the ground. 
So uh, that's a lot <laughs> and, and good. Uh, yeah, thanks, Ori. We certainly know he was thinking Lovecraft because we've got the, yeah. we definitely got the Megatherians to be that way. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so and then on Facebook, there's a long discussion initiated by Austin Beeman regarding the red sun on, on Earth. Uh, remember, that's, uh, that's something that, that Mantis had noticed for us that maybe the uh, that Apu Punchao isn't so far back in time as you know before our time. Maybe he's actually you know sometime shortly before uh, Typhon. Because it, there seems to be a red sun. Um, I got to tell you the truth. I I don't. I think that when we get there, we're gonna. We're. I'm gonna be convinced that we're just misreading it. That's what I believe. I I believe not to look. Mantis is very familiar with this text, but I just I just don't think I can make that work. Um, and and then there's the idea that that well you know. Wolf made a mistake. <laughs> he shouldn't have done that. He forgot that, uh, you know, that in Earth of the New Sun, that this was in deep time, and therefore mm. uh, there shouldn't be a, a red sun. But uh, th there is a, a kind of a reference um, in Earth of the New Sun that that th during this time the sun has not yet uh, begun to dim uh, or been dimmed. So, um, which once again doesn't mean that it is in deep time all by itself, but that's why I think we're going to discover. Um, but I'm not, I don't have to worry about it yet, but Austin has uh, decided to take it on. He says the red sun in Apupunchao's time seems to me to be a mistake that is so blatant an error that it has to be intentional. And he says, this plays into my extreme minority opinion that earth of the new sun is meant to be taken as apocryphal, that is, false gospel. Not written by Severian, not factual in any way. We are meant to read it and enjoy it, but ultimately reject it. Certainly not apply it as commentary on the Book of the New Sun. It's brilliant commentary on the unreliability of ancient texts, specifically religious ones. Uh, and then he notes the, the change in voice between... Um, Book of the New Sun and Earth of the New Sun. And he says, I've always perceived that as the first clue that we should be suspicious, the same way we become suspicious based on the writing style changes in Fifth Head of Cerberus and the Book of the Short Sun. Or for what it's worth, the changes in the verbal style that show changes in identity throughout the Book of the Long Sun. Yeah, and so, uh, Craig, what follows is a really intense conversation that's worth checking out. Join the Facebook group and check out uh, the conversation. It was pretty cool. Yeah, it is a fascinating idea, I have to say. Yeah. Like with the, here's a whole book that's an exercise in wrong yeah. stuff. <laughs> like, yeah. As a rule, though, Craig, I, you know, I just typically don't cotton to postmodernist takes on wolf stories. It doesn't have uh, to be postmodern. It is quite historically, literally true that there are lots of bad books written about saints. You don't have to be well, that's that's that. that's true. But surely that but that is a modern that's a postmodernist take that to say that this particular text, that this particular that this particular story is is basically just uh, tricking the unwary into believing that this has anything to do with the previous book or is even written by Severian or even true. Yeah. And it would be very meta 
<laughs> no matter what, it would definitely yeah. be quite meta. Yeah. But, you know, still it was really good. Uh, we haven't seen that much give and take on the on the Facebook page in a while. And it was nice to see. Uh, speaking of that, uh, Ori Kowarski has his own theory. He says, regarding why there's a red sun in Epipun Chow's time, wouldn't that be answered if the command is not opening a time rift, but instead creating perfect eidolons in the here and now of the people who lived during the time of Epipun Chow? I suppose that's true, Craig, but then you would have to wonder why in Earth of the New Sun, uh, Severian is so worried that he's going to uh, be killed, right? When when the star comes and when all of the, or maybe maybe that's not implied in what Ori thinks at all. Maybe he doesn't think that when uh, he's resurrected, when Abu Puncha was resurrected, that the witches are going to be there. I guess I always just assume that that's true, but there's no necessary reason to believe that's true. Hmm. Yeah. If they're if they're just eidolons, though, then they wouldn't blow up, would he? Right? Because it's not really him. Well, I mean, I mean, I don't. Hard to say. I, I mean, do you? Are you? You can't. Eidolons can't well, touch, I mean, well, touch no, their orange. Yeah, eidolons can't touch their right. Yeah, He's Severian the Eidolon him. is afraid to touch him. No, 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 that's a, actually, yeah. So, uh, hmm. Yeah, okay. Well done, Ori. I, I don't have a good answer against that. <laughs> so, <laughs> also, Adrian Ion has a lot of different theories. He says, my two cents, Dorcas drained Jalenta's blood. She starts to seem more and more as a vindictive actor in this. Fumblehot is Typhon's star, the one he aimed uh, the whirl at. Ah, that's a little theory embedded in a theory. And why they try to resurrect Apupunchao? Vodalus is a subject of the Megatherians, and they're looking to take control of the Conciliator. But Vodalus, inept as he is, has no idea Severian is the Conciliator, and he tries to capture the one he does know about. Mm -hmm. I kind of like that, actually. There's yep. something to that I, I kind of appreciate. True, yeah. true, true, true. And he thinks the seance scene screams a voyage to Arcturus, which has a seance scene yeah. at the beginning of it, yeah. I, which is actually pretty true. I'm quite, Wolf has to have read that. I mean, it seems so much. Oh, like, oh, oh, yeah, yeah. I don't know what, he, he has seance. Even? I don't remember him ever mentioning it, but he does have seance scenes a lot. Uh, now that I've yeah. come to think of it in his in his books, so I got not too long ago. I got a beautiful version of Voyage Start to us too, by the way. But that's is that it is that the one with the big red hole uh, in the yeah. front? Yeah. Oh yep. man, yep. I've got that on my. I love that. It's so beautiful. It's so cool. It's so good. Yep. Is there a good, um, you know, like a Lexicon Earthus or a chapter guide or something like I don't like Mark think does so. for for Voyage to Arcturus, because I could really use one of those. I've been looking for it, some kind of annotations on Voyage to Arcturus for a long time. There must be websites that do it, but I, I don't think there's anything. You like would think, but no, nothing but... really systematic and authoritative mm -hmm. at, like you would have, like I've come to expect with Wolf's work. <laughs> Just kind of hit and miss and, you know, yeah. and I, what about this? And what about this? You know, let's see. Marcus Gavea has a lot. A lot of thoughts. He says, um, great show, guys, and a tough chapter. I appreciate it. <laughs> it is tough, yeah. Thank you for recognizing. Uh, 
<laughs> he says, I thought there were a lot of asides and descriptions that were really helpful hints to set one's mind racing. And I have a lot of thoughts, but I'll divide them up to make the conversation easier. Thanks. He says, one great hint. The idea of Hildegren or others as a sacrifice and necromancy in general. He really likes uh, Mandis's uh, idea, and he likes uh, the idea of necromancy, uh, as uh, Severian points out later on. He says, the reference to necromancy got me thinking of the extent to which the Book of the New Sun is a reflection on different ways of calling up the past. We tend to think of the pursuit of historical knowledge as morally objectionable, and yet we see advocates of the new Renaissance. Let's go back and discover all they knew in ancient times, guys. Willing to do a little necromancy, a little traitorous work, a little corpse digging and eating to get there. Uh, he says, remember the corpse digging was how modern anatomists got their knowledge too. Uh, the analogy between classicism and necromancy is not new either. Early 20th century German historian Willem Mowitz Mollendorf described philological research as feeding the ghosts of the dead with one's life's blood to learn what they had to say. That's what we're doing, Craig, just like Tiresias's ghost in the Odyssey. So I think it's a helpful lens to keep on this chapter and more broadly as we see all these different ways of bringing things back. He Then he notes, the Witch of Endor connection was a great catch in this regard too. That works and yet doesn't work out well for Saul, just as it didn't work out for Hildegrin. Wow, that is great. And normally I like to summarize these, but that, I couldn't figure out anything to leave out in that. Also, uh, Marcus likes Mike Farrar's theory about Hildegrin being a victim of assassination uh, attempt by the witches. Um, even though he doesn't necessarily buy it, he says, yet and yet, even if Mike's theory is off a little, it's spot on on how it observes the dynamic between Hildegrin and the witches. The description of Hildegrin as Shakespearean helps here. He has a story about what he's about, and he believes that he can place everyone in a narrative, even when he can't. He's really headed for a fall. Does anyone think he's more than a poor man's Polonius? The <laughs> command shows little respect for him, despite Hildegrin's claims to the contrary. Marin defends him half-heartedly and ineffectively from being revealed just enough for a little dramatic entrance. Severian and Dorcas aren't convinced, so Hildegrin has no idea who the new guests are, no idea what he's doing in the past, no idea of the danger he's in. That is typical of Vodalari, but we have to ask, why are the witches going along at all? What are they getting out of this? And, uh, well, just put that on the big pile of things we don't know about the witches. It's convincing, kind of. I mean, it's it's a different way to, you know, Hildegrin always talks a good game. And so maybe the point is that if you fall into that too much, you kind of miss that. Yeah, he's working for the wrong guy here. Um, hmm. Kind of like that. Yeah. You like him as a Polonius. That's very cool. <laughs> he also he likes uh, the theory that someone proposed last time that the witches are there just to investigate timelines. And I, I kind of find that to be credible, although uh, even though that might be their job, I don't know necessarily what their motivations are still, just as he pointed out. He says, 
if they're there to investigate timelines, this gives them a potential reason to work with Hildegard. And I'll admit, I don't see the augury on human girls take, though I, I do see the appeal of taking the homunculus in a jar at the end of Citadel as related to such a, a practice. But the connection to the corridors beneath the Citadel and Valeria seems spot on. So the badger might simply have provided a means to this end. If that is the witch's task, though, is it related to the name of the witch's guild? It seems like it's hidden from us. Tortures are formally the seekers of truth and penitence. What are the witches? Are there other guilds' names that could be associated with them? Are they fellow seekers of truth and repentance, but through you know, revisions of the timeline? Eh, I don't know. I'm not sure where to go with that one, uh, Marcus. That's that's intriguing. Um, it's the kind of thing I'm interested. In. I just I'm kind of stuck. So for Mantis's uh, idea of the Kamean and her role as a pagan, he thinks that we uh, pass over this too hastily. He says Michelangelo is a spot-on reference and points us to exactly the sort of history muddled with story problems typical of the Brown Book. Consider why are there sibyls on the roof of St. Peter's, a Christian church at all? Uh, Craig, when he said this, I said, what? There are why are there sibyls on the roof of the Sistine Chapel? That's that's a very interesting parallel that he draws, and I don't even know if he intended it, but you know, the witches are actually on the roof in the stone town. It's true. But he answers, uh, because they were pagans who predicted Christ, despite being pagan. In Augustine's City of God, he notes the predictions of Jesus by the Ethrian Sibyl, but also notes that some people associate them with the Chimaean instead. And here she holds company with Virgil who in the Middle Ages was also taken to A, have predicted Christ's birth, and B, have magic powers. Moreover, with the reference to Lake Avernus in shadow and the name point uh, to Book 6, Virgil's Aeneid, which is the most famous portrayal of the Chimaean in literature, there are several parallels to this chapter. The Chimaean also goes into a trance as Apollo violently seizes her. In a particularly Wolfian moment, the divine spirit also scatters all the sheets of prophecies into an uninterpretable mess. All this before she takes the hero down to the realm of the dead. And this lines up with our Chimaean. And all the more, as Virgil's isn't cheering on Aeneas's mission either. She's just the messenger. Uh, the payoff then, I think, this gives us a pretty decisive analogy for how to understand the command's relationship to Severian and the new son. Accurate in her predictions, able to help, not committed to the project. Uh, to follow the naming convention, she's not on the side of the saints, but it, she's an ally nonetheless. Yeah, that's interesting. And then he says, uh, lastly, I have to say that I'm not at all convinced Apupunchao is supposed to really be a representative of actual Incas in our world. Oh, wow. Brave place to, to stake a flag there, Marcus. Uh, Wolf's afterwards make it explicit that he tries to use comparable historical and cultural elements in our translation. So if he suggests Latin is not Latin, why should Apupunchao be Apu Punchao. One might object that this makes the story unintelligible. I might say something like that. 
if we have to wonder if the if capoeiras are really capoeiras and to what extent the uh, the known history of the missionaries in the jungle should be used in interpreting the story. But it seems to me that that's the pickle Wolf put us in. He claims the story is intelligible to us only by analogy of our own histories and languages. Perhaps that's the distinction without a difference in the end. But it seems to me we are meant to attend to all the cultural details, but also hold them lightly. This is the only explanation I have for why South America geography is reversed east to west. As an exception, to prove the rule that we are not supposed to be taking this as history. But that's a wild stab in the dark as a problem I have no solution to. <laughs> well, interesting. Um, yeah. I like it, the idea that it's Apple, that Apple Punchow is our Apple Punchow, but he's got a point. What do you think? I'm going to have to wait until we get to Earth of the New Sun a bit more. Mm. I really think about Apple Punchow. Um, it's, it's very similar to, I mean, we were talking about before about how uh, there's a way to read Long Sun where the outsider isn't God, but is but is another creature. But then there's the whole point that, but yeah, but at the same time, the whole premise of Long Sun is that Silk had a real experience of the real God, right? Mm -hmm. And so it's like, you know, to get the whole thing going from the beginning, the big picture thing, it makes sense that it's, you know, one way that, that, yeah, he's definitely gotta be, he's something kind of from our world because he's actually in our history. And just like, you know, the fact that it's South America makes all of this, slightly familiar even though not quite so familiar i feel like it's kind of a similar idea of when you dig into the details there might be ways that it's not what we expected but it kind of still has to be that big thing to get the whole story going i don't know if that makes sense but that's yeah that's kind of that's a little bit more how i feel about it like yeah it may totally be right that but i'm not i'm not entirely convinced that Wolf specifically knew that Apu Puncha wasn't something else, but rather that the sort of doubt and other possibilities that are in there are intentional to make it seem weird and to create that sort of vast historical distance. Um, but I don't know that you can go to the next step and say, and therefore it really is this other thing, which is <laughs> clearly X. But right. I, I don't know if I'm I am arguing that, yeah, there is some doubt and fuzziness in there. So I can't necessarily also say with absolute certainty. Oh, yeah. But no, he's Incan. <laughs> <You know, even, laughs> so. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Jack Redolph uh, jumped in on uh, in on Facebook and says, Timo thought very highly of his readers. It's touching. He thought we were all as clever as him. But you know what? We're not. <laughs> Apu Punchao is a perfect example. <laughs> Wolf said that everything revealed in Earth can be deduced from Book of the New Sun. But did anyone here know Apu Punchao was Severian before Earth? Well, I don't know if he actually said that, but uh, it certainly is implied, right? He he did. He said, I'm not trying to be obscure here. <laughs> I <laughs> thought that you would pick it up. Oh, okay. Yeah, I mean, I know I as I'm going to talk in just a little bit, I do think it's possible to know that from, from yeah. this thing so um yeah and i i don't remember if i figured that out before i read earth new sun but i i still 
it's still, still it, yeah, there. it's possible. That at least it's possible. There. Look, yeah. look, the, the the connections are all there. Severian connects Apupunchao to the funeral bronze in his uh, in his mausoleum, and Severian. Well, he says they called it. His people called him the new son too, right? So right, and the the fact that um, Severian says at the end of Citadel, you know, he connects. He connects himself to the body in the mausoleum, and he kind of connects Epipunchal to uh, his memory, yeah. right, of the first Severian. You keep the crooks and charlatans in business, babe. But do appreciate your And it is time for us to thank our patrons again. Thank you so much, especially as we have been less than totally regular with our output lately. We're getting back on track. We are making progress, especially as we're very shortly ready to start S.W.O.R.D., but we really do appreciate all the support we're still getting. And just as usual, this episode, if you are a patron, will have an extra bit at the end. This time we're talking about a very early wolf story, The Green Wall Said which Mark Ramini once called Wolf's first truly inscrutable puzzle story. So, cool. But first, we want to just say thank you to all the new patrons. And remember, if you join up on Patreon, every level gets access to all the extra actual content that we put up there. It's just little extra goodies like stickers or the little master clips that you get. So $2 at the journeyman level, $2 a month for access to all the extra podcast content, and then $5 a month or more, that's up to your discretion, for all the extra goodies and the master clip. So speaking of, we have two new journeymen this episode, Thomas Jessen and Zachary Nelson. And we have two new master patrons, Benjamin Dyson. It's not as if your body's gonna die, son. And Ed Vanderwinden. And the wind in the Thank you to everyone for supporting us and keeping us going and paying our bills. And then this is it. This is the last bit of the chapter from this. I have. I suppose we didn't do the appendix yet, but well, maybe we can pack that in. Let me. We'll see. We'll see how whether we can get it all in one episode. Just like we'll, we'll be as impressed as um, Ebenezer Scrooge. Oh, they did it all in <laughs> one night. Oh, wow. <laughs> chapter thirty-one: The Cleansing. Part two. Uh, here we are again, Craig. <laughs> yep. Yeah, let's see where we are here. Um, I guess we we just talked about a lot of background last time. We yeah. About Apupunchao. But it is a dense chapter, so there's a lot of background that gets there's so much to talk to about. And too. Yeah, I don't little know. things and, that are never developed but seem yeah. super important. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe who knows? Maybe we'll figure this out i don't know it's yeah there's just just a lot to work through i have going through this i have so 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 much it's the one chapter i know that on first read most people are like what was what (laughs) and i mean we were even talking about how there are sections of it where just basic character motivation doesn't always seem to make sense so yeah there's yeah it's a it's a very wolf-esque chapter like there are things here that are so condensed and compact and things start to move so quickly. I mean, we're not even in the quick part yet, but already the sort of ways that they're talking about things and who knows what already and who can see what about Jalenta and who's got plans and which point, like we're already in that 
wolf slingshot ending kind of yeah, mode exactly. for this book. Yeah. Okay, so here we are. Hildegren is is anxious for everyone to get moving along on his project and yep. stop focusing on Jolenta. So he says, well, we best do something quick. There's a storm coming, I would say. <laughs> uh, but storm the, a brewing. Yeah. <laughs> yes, Hildegren. But the, uh, the command is on our side. She says, we shall move along as quickly as may be. Now I must use all minds and the sick woman's will be of little help. You will feel me guiding your thought. Do as I bid you. This is uh, the sort of seance that reminds me of the, the one in Christmas Inn in our mm-hmm. bonus I was going to say, yeah. same thing, definitely. Yeah. There's definitely not just a holding hands and sitting around, but it's like, I will need your minds. Yeah. yeah. It's yeah. almost like Wolf has sat in on one or two seances. Mm. Yeah. The Kamehian lets go of Marin's hand to pull a rod, a magic wand from yep. her bodice, right? Yep. And she says, uh, you know, she, she says some fake Latin, <laughs> right? Like <Yeah>. Harry Potter. <laughs> but uh, now, by the way, I, I don't think what is meant here by bodice is is a corset like you, you know, you've seen young women wearing at conventions. Mm-hmm. It's either the upper part of a dress from the hips up or a vest worn over a blouse. It, basically, here it's, it's some outer garment that can conceal a wand. Mm-hmm. Uh, this yep. wand, yeah. Uh, Typical wolf vocabulary in New Sun, where seems like it could suggest one thing, but probably means something totally different. Yeah. So uh, this wand is interesting. It doesn't seem to have any ends. They just fade into fuzzy nothingness. Yeah, which is really cool. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And and the visible part is about as long as a dagger. Then she does something that's really interesting with this wand. She opens her mouth and swallows it. (laughs) <laughs> and then Severian can see it glowing <laughs> in her throat. And, and he refers to the quote, sagging skin of her throat. Right? Yeah. 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 But she can still talk even with this infinitely long wand in her throat. And I don't, it, the idea of having to swallow it, it just seems, I guess you could try and see if, Oh, is there some like scientific thing to me? It just seems like a really cool way for wolf to freak you out right like, yeah pulls out a wand it's weird <laughs> of that we're gonna swallow it so yep no definitely so yeah so she says close eyes all of you there is a woman here i do not know a high woman chain never mind torture i know her now do not <laughs> shrink from my hand none of you shrink from my hand yeah she, she, she suddenly realizes that thecla is here inside severian in the circle yeah. as well right yep and her attitude is very much just like you know don't worry about it don't worry. okay it's all, i got it's it. all right i got it, I got it. Yep. <laughs> i'm up to speed yep. noted yeah so in the stupor that had followed Vodalus's banquet i had known what it was to share my mind with another this was different the command did not appear as i had seen her or as a young version of herself or as it seemed to me as anything Rather, I found my thoughts surrounded by hers, as a fish in a bowl floats in a bubble of invisible water. Thecla was there with me, but I couldn't see her whole. It was as if she were standing behind me, and I saw her hand over my shoulder at one moment, and felt her breath on my cheek at the next. Then she was gone, and everything with her. I felt my thought hurled off into the night, lost among the ruins. Mm. Yeah, this you know this reminds me again of the seance in Christmas End a little. Everybody yeah. in the circle seems to have been put into some sort of epileptic seizure or something. Yeah, 
Yeah. And there's something too. I mean, she says, right. Like, give me your minds. Um, Mm -hmm. and, and don't resist me or something. And then what happens here is this weird sort of dissociation, right? It's like there are sort of loss of not just of place, but you know, he says that I felt my thought hurled off into the night and lost. So it's almost sort of like loss of self or loss of consciousness. Right. Yeah. Kind of a not just loss of, of consciousness, but yeah, some kind of merging. Of, right. Yeah, something. So Severian wakes up now. <laughs> so we, we, we go to Severian waking up and he's lying on the stone tiles of the palace next to the fire. He's been foaming at the mouth. He's bitten his lips and tongue. He can't stand. He's too weak, but he can sit up. He's in a, a specter world. The mm-hmm. others in the circle are, are all see-through, right? Yep. Yep. So something different seems to have happened to him than from everybody else. And that's one, like, this is one of those weird moments where, you know, there's a gap. And then he says, when I recovered. So what happened in there? Like, did things actually happen? Did he just like lose consciousness and pass out? And now he's waking up. We don't really know, but definitely he's woken up in some, you know, other world, right? Astral projection, other plane or whatever, but he can still see the others. They are still sitting there, but yeah, something is different with Severian for some reason. Yeah. And maybe it's because of, you know, what he went through at Vodalus's camp, although Hildegrin probably did something like that but you know mm-hmm. he's, since he's so much to people or could be the simply because they are reaching out to himself in a sense. yeah and i think that's something that it doesn't really get clarified much until like even earth of the new sun right the idea and i guess we should mention it here real quickly but it's the idea that when you time travel like this if you get close to yourself in the other time that it seems like unstable things happen and like right maybe one of them is annihilated explosion yeah Yeah. one of them's annihilated something like that we're gonna see that happen i do think that it's possible that that's what just happened to severian is related to that like it's like the first little jump out because nobody else in the circle has like you know passed out or gotten knocked back or something like that we do know hildegren's gonna break off in a bit but I get the feeling here that it's because they're going back to Severian that he, that's why he's for whatever reason, knocked out of the circle for right. some reason. Cause something's he, something about him is gumming up the works because it seems like everybody else is still sitting there under the command's control, not positive, yeah. but I think that's what's going on. Yeah. But you think at this point, the command would already have recognized that there was something wrong. That's the other weird thing. Cause she doesn't seem to look up and see Severian, but we'll, right. we should keep going. We'll get there. Right, right, right. Sure. So let's think about Hildegrin. Hildegrin is as see-through as everyone else. And Severian puts his hand into his ghost chest and he feels his heart beating, quote, like a moth that's struggling to escape. So, oh yeah, so much for Hildegrin being a robot. Yeah. But for Jalinta, Severian can see that Amarin has not even imagined everything that was done to her. He says, I saw wires and bands of metals beneath her flesh, even though they were dim. And then he can see that he is see-through as well. And he can see, quote, the claw burning like a blue flame through the leather of my boot. So the claw is definitely working now, right? And it's, it's either working or it's it's just that he's in the plane where, you know, important things glow, <laughs> you know, maybe. But, <laughs> but I like to think that maybe uh, it's working. I mean, there 
possibly what if like when the Kimeans started doing that thing when they go back in time he's close enough to Apapunchao that he should be exploded but maybe the the claw saved him who knows i mean could be that that you know he's had suffered maybe another death here if we want to sort of tally up all the different times Severian (laughs) possibly dies and comes back i think this is a candidate yeah yeah i I think you're right yeah fuzzy one but i definitely think it's a candidate yeah it didn't have to be but maybe yeah well so Severian tries to grab the claw but quote there was no strength in my fingers and Marin is almost as dim as Jalenta, incredibly thin. Severian says, now that intelligence no longer animated that ivory mask, I saw that it was no more than parchment over bone. So Marin's face is a mask, right? So that's like how you read that sentence is important because it's, he said things before when he's describing people that are kind of metaphorical kind of comparisons. This and it's it seems like he's saying that literally that yeah. it's literally a mask over bone. I mean, maybe I don't know. It's it's that one's a hard call for me because we're already in this weird astral world where <laughs> I don't know what we're seeing is like associations or you know you can see the truth of things in images rather than just actually literally seeing what's there. But he literally sees like the mechanical stuff in Jalenta. Is this a literal description of Marin? I don't know. Yeah, yeah. It's, well, it feels it feels like a literal one, but mm-hmm. and and the language least, definitely looks. It seems literal to me. Yeah. Yeah, and I and I've argued that that Asia and uh, Agilis are wearing masks that they may well have procured from the witches. So that's a that's a that's a tick in my corner i see it that way anyway yeah just another thing about marin and the mask that's also weird because maybe it suggests that lots of things let's say it's literal that yeah she literally is just masks over bone or something Mm -hmm. like it was no more than literally parchment over bone so then in some ways does that mean marin is uh, an animated corpse or does it mean she's some kind of robot or does it mean that she's just magicked somehow? <laughs> like she's, yeah. you know, they've made the, the same Kumeans changes. Right. They, well, they've made changes to Jalinta. Maybe they've made changes to, to Marin in some way. Maybe so. If we take that sentence as literal though, like parchment over bone, then he's not just saying she's like super skinny and wearing a mask. I mean, if it's literal, does it literally mean that she's just got like a mask no over flesh no flesh? Her- yeah. Yeah. Like how how literal do you read that? Um, well, it was, she might think ah. there might be very little. She might have very thin flesh. She might have. She might be. She might be very old. In fact, right. You know, very right. Very thin skin. And he know. calls her young all the time. She seems like young, but maybe she is incredibly old. It's it's sort of frustratingly wolf written there that even mm-hmm. when it seems literal, it's not. We're not clear. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, even when you want to, yeah. even when you, I want to take it literally, then I have to start pulling myself. Wait, wait a minute, how literal am I taking this? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And when he calls it an ivory mask, you know, her face was was pale, but, but be, now, but is it, could it be really white. literally yeah. an ivory yeah. mask? Does it mean white? Yeah. So yeah. there's a lot there that's weird, but that also just makes the witches even weirder. But she says she's, now that that intelligence no longer animated that ivory mask, which was just. I, I can only imagine that could be if it was a real face, if 
she were, um, you know, unconscious or something. Mm, yeah, yeah. And he does talk about how, you know, they all had to give their minds to the Cumaean and that he was sort of, you know, he right. was phasing out. So, yeah, she would phase out, too, I guess. And yeah, it just another weird moment that to me make right. the witches even stranger. Yeah. Now, some people, and let's be fair here, some people would say, hey, James, you theorize that when the claw was glowing, it meant the first Severian was nearby in Mirror World. Shouldn't we be able to see him now? Well, you know, that's that, that's a reasonable hypothesis. It, it's not necessary. But anyway, it might be glowing now because Apple Punchow is on his way. In fact, mm -hmm. personally, Craig, I, I think that's exactly why it's glowing. Uh, based on what's happening, uh, you know, to Dorcas and to, to Severian. And what Apu Punchau is, is Severian in the future, right? It's, or it's, in or, the past. Well, it's Severian <laughs> in Severian's future when he travels to Earth's past, if that makes sense. But I think the point is that when Apu Punchau is doing his thing, that's when the white sun, the white dwarf has gotten closer, like the star, the Severian star that he always talks about in, in Earth of the New Sun. It's gotten closer. The power is more connected to him. It's very, very close. So maybe, yeah, the fact that he's close to Apu Punchau means that the claw and what it represents, that connection to that, that power, is more intense. Could be. Yeah. There, there is, I do have a kind of a different understanding about Apu Punchau mm -hmm. in that, yes, you know, because Severian and the first Severian are essentially the same person. Severian says that himself. However, Apu Punchau is in the past, but the first Severian is from a previous universe mm -hmm. iteration. So iteration, yeah. it's not like it's Severian is going to do this too, right? He does it pretty much, he tends to align with the same life as, as the first Severian, as Severian yeah. has described him. But this, the, the ways he gets there and the certain details around it might be quite different. Mm -hmm. So in that, in, to, to that extent, I kind of, I do see Apple Punchau as somebody distinct, not just, not necessarily a, a, an apparition from Severian's future. Ah, gotcha. Okay. Yeah. Cause I still assume, I think that Apu Punchau is just this Severian mm -hmm. in, like I said, Severian's future. Right. But in Earth's past, yeah. Correct. So yeah. just yeah. So that's usually what I because if at least if you follow that sort of surface story of up through Earth of the New Sun, that's what happens. Because then after yeah. he goes on yeah. the ship, he goes back in time, and then yeah, he's like lying there and all that kind of stuff. And he even talks right. about his time um, as Apu Punchau. So right, yeah, yep. Um. Oh, and interestingly, uh, Mantis who. Uh, who first uh, framed out the first Severian theory to me uh, also sees it as something a little bit different. Um, I think he must, that's a good question. What, how does he see, uh, I'll have to ask him, how does he see Apu Punchau? Uh, because he sees the first Severian as someone whose timeline is being obliterated by our Severian. And so, and Severian's obliterating it like 10 years in his past. Does that mean, I don't know. I don't know. It'd be interesting to hear him say that. Chime in on Reddit, Mantis. I want to hear what you have to say about the uh, <laughs> about who Apu Punchau is. So uh, Spectral Dorcas, she's also knocked out, and she's not foaming at the mouth. So I, you know what? I I guess is Marin then knocked out. So Dorcas is knocked out. Everyone was knocked out. I thought so. I thought that was kind of the basically the point of when Cumaean says, "Give me your minds." It's like 
they all are supposed to get knocked out while uh-huh. she does the spell or whatever. Oh, okay. And the fact yeah. that Severian has woken up is something weird. Probably not, not in her plan. Oh, maybe, yeah. Say. Yeah, maybe so. So, well, so anyway, so Spectral Dorcas, she's, she's knocked out and she's not foaming at the mouth, but she, she's much more solid in appearance than Hildegrand. Mm-hmm. Which is, I, I, maybe we can come up with some sort of understanding for why that is. Yeah, why? Because it would seem like if we're just doing some kind of astral projection thing, doesn't matter who you are, like, but apparently something about being connected to Severian gives different gradations of this. Being being his blood or something like that, or... Yeah, it could be that, yeah. Or it, I don't know if it's like the relationship or if it's literally his blood, like that she is related to him. Yeah, I don't know. Well, you know, we had that scene with uh, on the Lake of Birds where she she plucks a, a hyacinth from the, from the lake. And, yeah. and, and my interpretation of that is that she's because, because of Severian's uh, resurrection of her with the claws, she's still, she's to some degree from another timeline, another universe, another many worlds branching, however you want to think yeah. of it. And in that world where she is from the lake of birds is covered with hyacinths. And, um, so if that were true, then she's then perhaps she's more solid simply because she is uh, more people, or yeah. you know, in a sense, yeah. So uh, Marin's ghost is like a quote black clad doll, so thin and dim that slender Dorcas seemed robust beside her. So she and and Hildegrind are both dim. Dorcas is uh, more apparent. Uh, Severian can't see himself, so who knows? So Severian can see the Kamehian for what she is as well. She, she's not a woman. She's not a Haradjul. There was something sleekly reptilian coiled about the glowing rod in her throat. I looked for the head but found none, though each of the patternings on the reptile's back was a face, and the eyes of each face seemed lost in rapture. Wow, okay. Right. Now, <laughs> how to picture this and what it actually means is something that lots of people have lots of different ideas about. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. So, geez, it's complicated. So it, like, well, it's the idea that she is actually some sort of reptilian thing sitting in in a human disguise. And then so, well, the reason she had to swallow the, the wand was so that she could get at it. Right. And so this is where I want to get down to the sentence, because I think a lot of times what people do when they do this is like, oh, yeah, the Kamehian is a big snake thing. The way the thing actually reads is that he says something sleekly reptilian coiled about the glowing rod, like in her throat. Right. And he then says, look for the head of the thing that had coiled around it, but can't find that. But it seems like what he's actually talking about is whatever is coiled around the rod in her throat. Doesn't seem like he's describing the Cumaean as a as this like way, a chain of as of, this of chain of things. Now that's I think most people have, and there are different images that I know various artists have done that often show her as like this weird thing. I think even Nathan Anderson has a really cool one where it's mm-hmm. like different versions of her through time and like I, th- I think head, it's kind like of inspired by Slaughterhouse Five, right? Oh yeah, that's right. Yep, yep, yep. Because they says so. that the way they see humans is like a big long chain. That's right. That's like, right. Because yeah. they see all of their lives in one go. Yeah. 
This, though, is different, I think, because now that I'm actually reading this closely for the first time in a while, I think he's talking about whatever it is that he sees wrapped around that thing in her throat, not the Cumaean. Like, I, I think he still sees the Cumaean woman sitting there, and then it's whatever is wrapped around her throat. Right. I think it seems to be, right? So it's it's a weird paragraph. So let me, I didn't read the first sentence, like, because what he says in that paragraph is, as I had suspected, the Cumaean was not a woman at all, yet neither was she one of the horrors I'd beheld in the gardens of the house absolute. So that's weird because mm -hmm. that would make you think, oh yeah, what he's going to describe is what she really looks like. But then the rest of it, he's describing something coiled around the glowing rod. Now, mm -hmm. you could say that because the rod is inside her, her whole body is wrapped around the rod. And yeah. and I don't, I don't know, but that's when looking at it this way, I'm just like... I, I had always assumed that, yeah, what he was describing was the Cumaean's entire body was really that. That first sentence seems to suggest that, but the rest of it doesn't now. Right. And so I don't know if I'm just getting too caught up in like <laughs> direct objects and like pronoun reference and stuff like this, like in these things, but it's a different way of looking at things. He says Cumaean's not a woman at all. Right. But she's also not like when he says she's not one of the horrors what he's describing to me sounds kind of a bit more like one of the horrors like with faces <laughs> all over it and so maybe what he's saying is she has something weird like that wrapped around the rod but she's something else i, I honestly i i don't know because <laughs> i i don't really know what to to think about this the Cumaean with all the different faces has always worked really well for people as like that slaughterhouse five image where you see, like you see her stretch through time. And so you can see all these different things. I don't know if that's, yeah. I, I don't know that that's what it's describing. You know, yeah, like he says if, that the patterns on the reptiles back. Yeah, were, exactly. Each of it were faces. Yeah. It's not that he sees the Cumaean's face multiple times. It's that right. there is, is this face that's lost in rapture on the back. Also, you could say, well, what are the, everybody else in that circle is lost in rapture at the moment, right? So is that reptile thing actually showing all the, like, is, are all those faces on there? The faces of the people in oh, the midst of the, cool yeah. the ceremony or, or ritual right now? I, uh -huh. I don't know. I mean, but that seems almost like more of a possibility than each of those faces are like, you know, the Cumaean through time. Yeah, I I don't know. Like reading it just makes me have more questions. But. Well, I think that the, the idea of the Kamean is inspired by something that uh, Severian uh, surmises about what he's seeing everybody at that moment. Mm -hmm. um, because he says, I think we are seeing ourselves from a perspective longer than a single instant. Right. Right. And, and that definitely not necessarily works. having to do specifically with the Kamean though. Right. Right. But that definitely works with the way that people interpret that, that mm -hmm. image of her with the, for the faces. I think that's absolutely right. He might though be talking about not that reptile and the, the multiple faces. He might be talking about why they seem, you know, diaphanous or whatever, because mm -hmm. they're not, they're not in one moment. They're kind of stretched in this other thing that could be, wow. um, and I feel like that's maybe a little bit more, but yeah. So, so we should say what he actually sees. Um, yeah. So although the threatening clouds had brought no wind, dust was swirling through the streets below us. I do not know how to describe it, except by saying that it seemed as if an uncountable host of minute insects, a hundredth the size of midges had been concealed in the crevices of the rough pavement. 
and now were drawn by the moonlight to their nuptial flight. There was no sound and no regularity in their motions. But after a time, the undifferentiated mass formed swarms that swept to and fro, growing always larger and more dense, and at last sank again to the broken stones. It seemed then that the insects no longer flew, but crawled over one another, each trying to reach the center of the swarm. Yeah, and Severian says, they're alive, but Dorcas whispers, look, they're dead. They're dead. Yeah. <laughs> and he says, she was correct. The swarms that had seized with life a moment before now showed bleached ribs. The dust motes linking themselves just as scholars pieced together shards of ancient glass to recreate for us a colored window shattered thousands of years before formed skulls that gleamed green in the moonlight. Beasts, Eluridons, lumbering spellae, and sleeking shapes to which I could put no name, all fainter than we who watched from the rooftop, moved among the dead. I'm not sure what's going on here, but Eluridons are a species related to dogs and wolves and foxes. They went extinct in North and South America almost six million years ago. Uh, Spillay? I, I, I looked up how to pronounce this. I'm not really sure. Uh, S-P-E-L-A-E-A-E. <laughs> yeah. Makes you want to go spelay, spelay, yeah. But but basically it means cave dwelling animal. It, it's, you know, it's in the scientific names of the cave bear, the cave lion, cave hyena. We talked about this a few chapters ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the European ice age leopard whose fossils were found, you know, in Eurasia. Mantis, in his chapter guide on the Book of the New Sun, sees some connection here to the dry bones prophecy in uh, the Book of Ezekiel in the Bible. It says, uh, in the ruins, Severian sees dust that rises up to form insects tumbling in large clumps on the ground, but then it changes. Uh, he, he quotes from the from what we just read. He says, this powerful sequence seems to derive from the book of Ezekiel, which says, the hand of the Lord was upon me and carried me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the midst of the valley, which was full of bones and caused me to pass by them round about. And behold, there were very many in the open valley and lo, they were very dry. And he said unto me, son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O oh, Lord God, thou knowest. <laughs> well, you know, I don't, I don't know. Again, he said unto me, prophesy upon these bones and say unto them, O oh, ye dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus saith the Lord God unto these bones, behold, I will cause breath to enter into you and ye shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you and will bring up flesh upon you and cover you with skin, and put breath in you, and ye shall live, and ye shall know that I am the Lord. He also mentions, uh, he also references it to Jack Vance in his uh, story, Ulan Dor from the Dying Earth. Uh, he says, the tale features a ruinous city torn by many millennia of civil war, and the city's immortal founder, awakened by the hero Ulan Dor, begins to refurbish the place through techno-magical means. It says, uh, 5,000 years and the wretches still quarrel. Time has taught them no wisdom. They sh- then stronger agencies must be used. Behold, 
The tentacles sprouted a thousand appendages. These ranged the city, and wherever there was crumbling or a mark of age, the tentacles dug, tore, blasted, burnt, then spewed new materials into the place. The, uh, Mantis says the difference is that that Wolf uh, doesn't have the all the technological and supernatural, uh, you know, parts in his telling. By continuing in the mode of Ezekiel, the result is more like a Clark Ashton Smith story than a Jack Vance story. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I definitely see that. Um, yeah, so I I get the idea that it could be like using that Ezekiel passage as a way to show this. I definitely think it's not just resurrection that we're seeing here. I mean, we're, I feel like what we're really kind of seeing is the world moving backwards. It's like one of those, you know, films of some Mm -hmm. animal decomposing, but in, but backwards where all the little, maybe the dust motes are like the little particles of life that have floated off, but now they're, they're coming back together. Well, what's um, that scene about the where Severian says they're alive and Dorcas says, look, they're dead. Yeah. And it's so such a weird way to stop because it seems like maybe they're both right because they're it's what they're watching is death backwards. And so, mm, yeah, yeah, maybe be. seeing them and, un, undecomposed. Yeah. Yeah. And so maybe the point there is that they're neither one nor the other when we're watching it this way, like they're in between could be um i don't know i know other people um have i've seen this on reddit i went looking for it again but i couldn't find it and i feel like it's on reddit somewhere but a few people have talked about like are these nanobots like is is what we're seeing like little tiny nano robots recreating this stuff for the vision i don't know i mean i used to think for a while that this was just the way that the hallucination or the vision or whatever that was going on here kind of formed but i also don't really think it's a hallucination i think they really are traveling in doing some kind of time travel um so i think the best explanation is that this is the way that severian describes seeing things from the past start to come to life and what he's he's just said right He, he doesn't think we're seeing people they're seeing each other in one point of time. He's like, we're, we've become unstuck. So watching something sort of come to life through a backwards process of decomposition kind of fits that Mm. it, it could. And so that's, it's sort of, that's what he's going to describe how the, the town itself seems to come back to how, how the, it rebuilds the buildings as well that might've been crumbling over time. Um, But it also seems very dreamlike and, artsy at the same time like is what we're watching literally what happened through time as like pieces of the decomposition flew off if those are like you know just literally dust from the animals that spread out maybe but it also seems like at times the way he describes it is like they're specifically recomposing and, and trying to rebuild things in a different way so i feel like i feel like wolf is carefully detailing something he intends to be incomprehensible right it could be that too yeah 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 and like i said if that if what he's describing is some way that severian is interpreting looking at time moving backwards but it's somehow in between literal and others maybe maybe that's what's going on i don't know i mean it's yeah it's hard it's very hard 
let's go ahead. Let's go on. Okay. So um, he says, one by one they rose, and the beasts vanished. Feebly at first, they began to rebuild their town. Stones were lifted again, and timbers molded of ashes were laid into sockets in the restored walls. The people, who had seemed hardly more than ambulant corpses when they rose, gathered strength from their work and became a bandy-legged race who walked like sailors and rolled cyclopean stones with the might of their wide shoulders. Then the town was complete, and we waited to see what would happen next. So now the command has reconstructed the area back to the time of when this town was created, right? Mm-hmm. So these are this is these are the people, the tribes, people that we, or the, or the citizens of this civilization, when that will meet in Earth of the New Sun, yeah, at the end, right? Yeah, yeah, I believe, I think so. I think that's what he's saying, and I, I think the best explanation for all of this is just the way that Severian, in his weird tripped out ritual mind that he's going on here <laughs> imagines like this is the way he sees moving back in time to mm, the point yeah. where they're where they're going um it may not be like he's literally watching it as if you were just watching a recording backwards but there's enough of that here to suggest that so, but it's not yeah. a recording right because no it's no it's a recording yeah. you can't change this is this, this is all going to be about agency people injecting themselves it's as though a portal was opened up into a previous time yeah yep. yep and 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 the i like the way that he describes it is these people were rebuilding their town mm-hmm. which is a weird way it's not like he's not just saying oh yeah we're watching the town fall to ruins backwards he's like no they're re- literally we're watching them rebuild it as we move past which is kind of a cool yeah it adds some of that agency back into time travel in a weird way that i don't really understand but i think yeah. it's cool I think it's really cool. So, yeah. So he, he says, and then it's like, then it's like now they're slowing down and they're getting to this moment. So he says, drums broke the stillness of the night by their tone. I knew that when they had last beat a forest had stood about the town for they reverberated as sounds only reverberate among the boles of great trees. Mm-hmm. A shaman with a shaven head paraded the street naked and painted with pictographs in a script I had never seen so expressive that the mere shapes of the words seem to shout their meanings. So I'm guessing that these pictographs are, you know, like the Incan and Aztec writing we're familiar with. I don't, I would think so. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's a way to, especially if you've never really seen pictographic writing, that would be a good way to describe it. Yeah. Yeah. So the dancers are following the shaman. There are a hundred or more capering in lockstep, single file, the hands of each on the head of the dancer before him. Their faces were upturned, making me wonder, as I wonder still, if they didn't dance in imitation of the hundred-eyed serpent we called the Cumaean. Mm. <laughs> okay, so here's the other part that makes it confusing, because here he says that that's, at least I think what he's saying is that serpent thing he saw was the Cumaean, yeah. and not just that thing in her throat, right? Okay. It's kind of, it's not kind of what he described though. <laughs> well, yeah, but, it's, it's, but he, he says that the patterns each had faces. So, but there's just that there's a lot of faces. Mm-hmm. So, which suggests yeah. that maybe it's not just an issue of just the, the people there in the seance showing, you know, the seeing their faces in the, in the patterns of, of the reptilian thing. It's, it's just a very 
it's a very long reptilian thing and it's got patterns and it's got a lot of eyes. And I, I guess he's saying, he's suggesting that maybe this, this dance that they're doing imitation is in some way influenced by the way the Kamehian herself looks, you know, in reality, mm -hmm. or that they're doing so, or that they're imitating something that the Kamehian herself is derived from or is imitating. Right. And it could also be that this ritual is about time travel somehow. Like if, if mm -hmm. this seeing of all these different faces, if that's because they're not in one point in history anymore, it would be cool to think that, yeah, they're, they're mirroring that they're trying to, you know, it's the magical thing where if we're like the thing we're trying to be like, then it'll make it happen. Uh, maybe I, like it, yeah. it, it could be. And so maybe the reason they're able to come back here was because there was this ritual that they were also trying to connect to, which adds a whole different layer. Like why are, why are the people in the past trying to reach out to the future? Is Apupunchao or Old Severian doing something intentionally to make this happen? Hmm. I don't know. I don't know also, but... he might be saying or suggesting that our our civilization, humanity itself, was shaped by at an earlier time by the race of the Kameans. Hmm. Could be. Yeah, so that they're the reason they have dances back then that are referencing the Kameyan and is because they have this. This is what's left of the knowledge of the Kameyans. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. No, no, too many. There's all kinds of suggestions here. But I don't <laughs> yeah. know. A lot I, of directions. It yeah, go. yeah. A lot of things. So definitely written in a more like more poetic than right yeah. <laughs> straight essay like description. So yeah. So it keeps going. Slowly, the dancers coiled and twined up and down the street, around the shaman, and back again until at last they reached the entrance to the house from which we had watched them. With a crash like thunder, the stone slab of the door fell. There was an odor as of myrrh and roses. A man came forth to greet the dancers. If he had possessed a hundred arms or had worn his head beneath his hands, I couldn't have been more astonished, for his was a face I had known since childhood the face of the funeral bronze in the mausoleum where I played as a boy. Okay. Okay. Cool. Greg, I think I understand now better why you and Mantis are so intent that there's no body in the mausoleum, that the only face that Severian is looking at is on the funeral bronze that he stands up in the corner. That one does seem to say that. Yeah. Yeah. That, that grammar, that syntax, at least I think I followed pretty clear. <laughs> yeah, I think so. Yeah. So you want to read the bit from shadow one more time? Yeah. Severian writes, For my part, I had already adopted as my own the device graved in bronze above the door of a certain mausoleum. They were a fountain rising above the waters and a ship volant, and below these arose. Yet sometimes, particularly in the sleepy hours around noon, there was little to watch. Then I turned again to the blazon over the door, which is engraved in bronze, and wondered what a ship arose and a fountain had to do with me and stared at the funeral bronze I had found and cleaned and set up in a corner. So it's a separate, this is a separate bronze, but it's, so it's tricky. And the, it, he says the dead man lay at full length, his heavy lidded eyes closed. 
in the light that pierced the little window, I examined his face and mediated on my own as I saw it in the polished metal. My straight nose, deep set eyes, and sunken cheeks were much like his, and I longed to know if he too had dark hair. So my issues had always been that I had never heard of an effigy called a funeral bronze, and nor did I feel right about the dead man lay at full length, referring to an image that's being stood up in the corner. But, you know, here we can see that the face Severian remembers, the face that is definitely the one he connects to the face of Apu Punchao is on the funeral bronze. So as strange as the language is, it must be that the body that is unmentioned, if it existed in the mausoleum, is irrelevant. Now, Mantis thinks that the body here, the the, the first Severian, is somehow resurrected by Severian. And I think Mantis likes the imagery of the door being broken, like the stone in Christ's tomb being rolled away, and like the slab being knocked down in this tomb here. I, I'm not positive he's resurrected at all, but I'm far less averse to the idea now that I can see that the body in the mausoleum is totally irrelevant to the text of the narrative in chapter three of Shadow. There is a funeral bronze. The man's face is on it, and that face is Severian's own. Proof comes in many places. So yeah. There you go. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Here's another idea. Severian has spent time contemplating his own face with the face in the funeral bronze. Why doesn't he recognize it as his face as well as the face on this man. I mean, I think it is a puzzle. Like, and I was wondering that too, because you think like, well, he recognizes his own. He's, he says the face was very much like mine. And part of me wants to be like, well, why can't he just recognize it as his own at the same time in the first part of shadow, when he's saying that part, he's like, what he's talking about being a little kid, maybe an early teenager when he had his little place there. So, you know, say let's, let's call him even 15 just for the heck of it. So he's 15 you know, I, my face would look nothing like me now. (laughs) You know, it's like, I mean, obviously I can see the difference, but every time I look in the mirror, I know I don't look like I did when I was 15. I mean, there is something about the aging that, I mean, he did say, I recognize the similarity. Um, And that's fair, but maybe, yeah, it is a difference. Like the funeral bronze was made when he was much older and being a bronze, it may not have been a perfect likeness. Maybe it was, you know, just close, just very close. Well, you know, yeah, I, I think I'm think, trying to think of, of what astute readers, as Gene Wolfe would call them, would think of this whole scene, whether they should recognize that Apupunchao is Severian himself. You know, um, but what kind of story a first-time reader would come up with to explain how this guy from the ancient past became Severian? Well, I, you know, I have yeah. no idea. Right, and... I think too, at that point, like once you're making those kinds of connections it, and because he does sort of have the whole setup of, and then I noticed it was the similar face and I would not have been more surprised if he had a hundred <laughs> arms, you know, there's all that kind of buildup, which does make you think like, oh, wait, am I supposed to think that's actually, you know, cause what he says is like, I was astonished to see that it was a face very much like a face I once said was very similar to my own. You know, right. it's like, but the, he doesn't recognize can, it at this point as right, his own as face. His own, he recognizes right. it as the face in the bronze, not his exactly. own face. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so 
the door opens first you get the slab falling like which seems very much like rolling the stone away from right Jesus's, that's that right. is definitely a uh a biblical and of course uh, to have myrrh like the smell of myrrh mm-hmm. and roses myrrh obviously from the gifts but also rose is very often as we've talked about many times a christological symbol to um yeah i mean that that is that part's in your face. Well, um, myrrh is a, is an incense used for embalming the dead in uh, oh in, in ancient uh, in, in the in the first century. Yeah, even better, even better. Yeah. It has multiple multiple ways that it works there. No, but I I like that. So yeah, maybe what they're doing here is resurrecting Apupunchao. Maybe that's what they're what those people think they're doing, which would make sense again of kind of messing with time and doing this ritual to that looks like the time traveling Cumaean or something. So yeah, that's that, that overlaps yeah, yeah. in a good way. I remember, there was a, right. I remember there's a, a Jewish comedian. She was, uh, she was talking about the, 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 uh, the story of, of the wise men uh, coming to Jesus and says, and they brought these gifts and it's like, Mer, Mer for a baby shower. <laughs> hey, why don't we invite <laughs> the wise men's over for the for the baby shower? Oh, I forget about the wise men's. I don't. I hate the wise men's. They always give lousy gifts. <laughs> yeah, I yeah, <laughs> I like that though. I think, but it's like yeah, it's Wolf could have chosen anything that, and to choose something is that most people only know from the gifts from the wise men, and but then also if it's got that resurrection side to it, yeah. Right. It's yeah. Perfect. But yeah. So yeah, he sees the face that is the face of the funeral bronze, which mm-hmm. is also a lot like his. I think. <laughs> so Apple Punchow, he's he's wearing massive gold bracelets on his arms that are set with gems, uh, jacinths, opals, carnelians, and flashing emeralds. And there's a shaman that is leading a parade of dancers, about a hundred in synchronized steps, and they come to a house where the older Severian is sealed up inside, just like Barnock, uh, which occurred at the beginning of this volume, right? Yep. And just, once again, I love how structured this book just seems to be for me. Then the stone slab of the door crashes open. In Earth of the New Sun, Severian has been resurrected and is now has the power to open the door. And it's apparent that Severian doesn't see the images of these people. Apu Punchau Severian was embalmed with myrrh and roses. Myrrh, like I said, funerary spice. And so are certain roses in Severian's world. And it's interesting that burning rose is Thecla's scent. He walks, quote, with measured strides. Uh, measured strides, I guess. I think that means careful strides. Mm-hmm. Strides of about the same length. So he walks forward until he's standing in the very center of the parade and the dancers seem to be circling around him and Severian leaves the tomb. Uh, remember he left the loom with the, with the help of the green man in new sun. And yep. he doesn't see this celebration at that time. So it, it's not obvious what's going on. I, I would guess that they did not in, expect to see him resurrecting like this, but this fits in with the celebration. So they don't stop. Right. Yeah, I don't know. Um, like we were saying before, like the shaman is leading the ceremony. So were they intentionally trying to resurrect him? Like, were they bringing him back at a certain time? But yeah, we also know that it it gets weird here. So first, to tell the Earth of the New Sun story, if this is the same moment that 
is right before the green man saves him because he's he saves him quote unquote because if he gets too close to his other corpse or if the other corpse comes back to life they're going to explode so he's like i gotta get away and the green man comes <laughs> and and that's they save him not only from getting him out of the tomb but also from dying if the other dude wakes up right um so here what that would mean is that this guy <laughs> this apu punchao is is this the actual original Severian or is this? Well, things happen. Well, yeah, things happen the but, way they happen for um, for in Earth of the New Sun. It's not necessarily then, true, but it but, right. a, but it tends things tend to happen very similar. So that means that that the Severian, the Eidolon, has escaped already. Right, the Eidolon Severian has escaped, and so this would be the original. I think unless there were other Eidolon weirdnesses happening on this is right. original Severian being actually resurrected. Right. And it was, you remember he's waiting for, he knows that when the, when the star, when the new sun appears in the sky, he's too far back to see it right now, but mm -hmm. when he finally does see it, then he knows that the other Severian, the older Severian, the original Severian is going to be resurrected. And then the, the you know, the whole, imploding thing since Severian, the new Severian is newer he'll probably be annihilated that's yeah. what i think yeah. so but i think if i was going to guess i would think that when th that new star comes what is happening simultaneously that's why they're going back to this moment the reason it's it's not clear whether they're going back to that moment in time rather than earlier uh when before Severian was alive, because this is the earliest time that the new sun has appeared. Or alternatively, that star and the little window or or power or whatever that the Kumeyan is doing are the same thing from the perspective of Earth of the New Sun. In other mm -hmm. words, oh, here's the, here's the star. Oh, look, I can see the future of the Stone Town as well. Mm, yeah, that's weird. So... Uh... Because now I'm thinking that when she talks about that mind on another planet way up there, maybe she's just talking about the new sun, that this is the first time. Well, he says that. No, I don't think so. Because one thing, the, that's a star. He's in Earth and New Sun, he repeatedly calls it a star. The star. Yeah. It's a star. It's a star. It's a star. And she says it's a planet. A planet. Yeah. And she actually gives it a name. Yeah. Which suggests name. It's, it's an existing star. Uh, on Fomohat. If I was going to say, I mean, we talked about this before. If I was going to say, I think that the mind is is a machine uh, or a, an artifact of the Kameans race, and it just records their thoughts and their that are going on. The Kamean can only go back and and affect time in her own time. But the but this this mind on this planet, maybe that's where they're from, is recording all of their lives, all of their thoughts. And so therefore, if she can connect to that artifact, that mind, that AI hmm. on the, on the planet, then she can go back much further. Hmm. Yeah. It, that's as good an explanation as yeah, anything <laughs> else. Cause that mentioning that planet just opens up so many other doors that, cause it's never mentioned again. Right. Right. It's, yeah. It's yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, it's and yeah, fish's mouth, uh, um, I know that Lee Berman has a 
has some theories uh, connecting fish's mouth to the cave. And well, you know, I've mentioned that before, but um, I think it's mainly just directing us to a particular name of a star, which we are actually familiar with. Hmm. He's just making the familiar strange and the strange familiar. Then Apu Punchao turns toward Severian and his little group. And it is clear to Severian that he, Apu Punchao, can see them. And he turns toward them and he lifts his arms, right? And this is like uh, Isagoma in the jungle garden, seeing Severian and Agia. And Severian is, is actually going to mention this. And like Isagoma, Apu Punchao is the only one who can see them. And at this point, <laughs> so at this point, Hildegrin rushes at this spectacle of, of Apu Punchao in order to abduct him. And remember that this is the plan. Severian is supposed to help subdue the guy and drag him back to Bodilus. Yeah. But Severian says, what followed, I hardly know how to describe. In a way, it was like the little drama in the house of yellow wood in the botanic gardens. Yet it was far stranger if only because I had known then that the woman and her brother and the savage were chant caught. (laughs) So uh, Severian certainly believes Isogoma and the missionaries are chant caught. Uh, They're they're actually Commonwealth citizens, I guess. Uh, And I'm not certain that it's that simple. I'm I'm not either. I don't think anyone really understands what it means to be chant caught or what it says about someone who is chant caught. For some readers... Severian saying they were chant caught and never contradicting it, that's sufficient. I have no team in this league. I just, I just don't know. But now it is as if Severian and Hildegrin and Dorcas are players in the jungle garden, and it is Apu Punchao who is visiting the, jun- the botanic gardens. And I think this suggests something more in line with what I think about the, uh, the botanic gardens, that Isagoma and the missionaries are from another time and that somehow they are interconnecting and merging with Severian's time in the jungle garden. And I'm inclined to think that he cites them here because they are both instances in which real people are intersecting with other real people in different times or timelines. Uh, I'll just get to that in a minute. No, and I, I actually, I think that makes sense. Oh. I agree with that. So first, there's some things I, that I want to talk about, but I think this is kind of big and underappreciated. I, I have to credit uh, Michael Andre Dreese's book of the New Sun chapter guide, and before that, Roy C. Lackey of the Earthless. Roy. Zavarian <laughs> calls Robert and Maria here sister and brother. He doesn't name them, but this is who he's talking about. Mm-hmm. But in Shadow of the Torturer, Chapter 22, The Hut in the Jungle, Marie says to Isagoma, I don't think we need all these praises of your sh- fetish, Isagoma. My husband wishes to hear your story very well, but l- tell it and spare us your litanies. Yeah. Yeah. So Mantis identifies this as a, quote, perfect memory paradox that's his term for Severian has an incorruptible memory and yet he gets things wrong <laughs> some things people call memory errors don't qualify for me as memory errors but just another way of putting it and others are implied and, and give me pause like Severian constantly getting lost 
in that like in that 1983 interview with Thruster that we've been citing lately, Wolf specifically identified getting lost as something Severian would not do without a good reason. So there's that. But we could argue about whether a good reason exists anyway. There are some others, like in chapter one, page two of Shadow of the Torture, where Severian seems to mix up whether it was Drott or Rosha who said that the volunteers were carrying pikes. And these are straight up contradictions. In my opinion, this is like the last. Roy Lackey identified this contradiction on the Earth list in May 12th, 1999. It's in volume 25. The title of the thread is variously some form of Robert and Marie. And Roy says, in the jungle garden scene in Shadow, the woman refers to the man thusly, my husband wishes. However, in the penultimate page of Claw, Severian recalls them as the woman and her brother. Does Severian's famous memory fail him? Did Wolf screw up? Or are the two passages not mutually contradictory? If not, is that a left-handed clue to their identities? I'm uh, as disinclined to Wolf screwed up theories as I am to everyone is Severian theories, but I do think both are occasionally very credible. However, there is the issue that Wolf cites in the scene again in Citadel of the Autark. Wolf cites this later and credits Robert Borsky with picking up on it before him. Citadel of the Autark, chapter 15, the last house. He's talking about Master Ash's house. He says, for some reason, those words and the picture of the house itself atop its rock recalled to me the house Asia and I had seen in the jungle garden where husband and wife had sat listening to the make naked man Isagoma. Yeah. Now, <laughs> the way in which the last house resembles the hut in the jungle garden, I think this confirms my theory about the way the hut and Abu Pun Chow's tomb resemble each other. I think that we should take that up when we get there, but I think it's going to come up anyway in a few minutes. Now, when Roy was at his most disciplined, he did not speculate on the list. He just lays it out the, with the tasks. It's not compatible. Could Wolf have made a mistake? Did someone forget? I leave it at that. That's the way Roy liked to think his approach was. But Mantis does speculate that Robert and Marie could be incestuous, a theme that carries on to Severian himself. Uh, maybe that's the original reason they left Paris or London or wherever. And Tony Ellis speculated that, you know, perhaps the two could be only chant con uh, commonwealthers. And so our brother and sister who believe that they are husband and wife. Uh, for me, I, I don't know. I prefer to ascribe failures in Severian's memory to discrepancies to his memory shared with the first Severian that, that his soul is stretched across two universes. However, in this case, I can't see how Severian slightly but significantly alters the lives uh, that, that this could account for whether Robert and Marie were brother and sister. However, it could be that the, for the first Severian, there were different people in the hut when Severian was there. And the reason Severian is misremembering in his near proximity to Apopuncha. Honestly, I don't know. Maybe that's the best explanation for me outside of a memory error on Gene Wolfe's part. Um, on the other hand, I suppose it could be supposed that Severian intuited that they were brother and sister from their appearance. But personally, I mean, 
Severian doesn't even recognize his own face in Apopuncha. I don't believe he <laughs> recognizes the connection to any family members that he meets along the way, not even his own fathers who look so much like him. It, as it's just pointed you know, out by others. Yeah. Who knows? Maybe it's also Freudian. I mean, he is sitting here with having a relationship with his grandmother, right? So mm, yeah. mi- mixing up relationships of familial or romantic that that's kind of what Severian's been doing, whether he knows it or not. So, <laughs> well, the, the, I mean, this is point in, he says he's hum- their husband and wife in shadow. Mm-hmm. He says their brother and sister here in claw in Lictor. He says their husband and wife again. Um, but if he, if the, if he, how does he know that they're brother and sister? I don't know. Wait, how do you, what do you think about the wolf screwed up? Idea? I think it's, very possible it's just it's another one that's weird because it's so easy to check and it's just like the draught and roche thing mm-hmm. i mean lots of people were reading this you got wolf you got hartman and granted they may not have been as obsessive as we are about every detail but that kind of seems like an easy one i don't know i don't know so i like to think it's intentional because then you don't just easily dismiss it. Um, yeah. And if we just start easily dismissing problems, then that would be yeah, half the fun of Wolf goes away. Madness, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, so I feel like you got to take it as real. And, and we've seen Severian mess up a couple times that I think are very intentional. This is kind of a minor point, but I, I don't know. I kind of actually do like the idea that the fact that he misses up brother and sister and husband and wife does fit thematically a little bit because of how all of his moving through time and messing Mm -hmm. up how everything works it really does kind of like his relationship with Dorcas is messed up and Dorcas eventually realizes it's messed up she doesn't know that she's his grandmother but she knows something's off and she knows something's not right so and even though it may be some other thing it's not really Severian she still knows this is not where I belong there's something thematically right about that that when severian gets things wrong it's because there there are other things that he's messed up and dealing with too and mm-hmm. i don't know maybe the freudian approach that it's a freudian slip maybe that's not so far off i don't know if wolf was being that subtle at this point in the middle of everything else i don't know but i still kind of like it yeah I like the way it works i mean i think it's better to just assume everything here is intentional and do our best to figure it out first before we just dismiss it well, it's not, it's not, honestly, there is only one of these that I don't, that as of yet, I haven't been able to come up with an explanation. When we get to Dorcas uh, making the little pouch for the claw, mm. well, uh, then, you know, we can talk about that. Yeah. Then. But yeah. for this, I mean, I, I can come up with an explanation that comports with my theory. Um, I'm sure other people can come up with other things. The idea that they are, Severian does say they're chant caught. Maybe they are uh, brother and sister, and they think that they're married, not their husband and wife. I yeah. mean, I don't know. That works, too. Yeah, there's any number of, of explanations. But I, it is easy to kind of walk by this little phrase here, yeah. brother and sister. We should also throw out again, you know, Agilus and Agia, they were incestuous. It's people, Agia yeah. who tells him about them being chant caught and whatnot. I mean, they're... Yeah, it's not like it's just totally out of the blue. I mean, there there right. are other situations like that going on. Yeah. Well, okay, back to it. 
uh, the, <laughs> the digressions dance... among digressions. Yeah. yeah. The, the dancers that Severian believes could not see Hildegrin, but they sense, they sense that he's there. They start shouting and they slash the air with stone toothed cudgels. Severian says, Apu Punchau, I felt certain did see him just as he had seen us on the rooftop and as Isangoma had seen Asia and me. Yet I do not believe he saw Hildegrin as I saw him, and it may be that what he saw seemed as strange to him as the Cumaean had to me. Yeah. Any idea about that? <laughs> this is strange. Yeah, I mean, there's something about, you know, seeing someone through time travel or seeing something about being different. Yeah, like he he doesn't know what Hildegrin looks like to him. Like, does he look like a a snake? Does he look like yeah. you know, a big blur? Um and it makes sense that when Severian says Apupuncha could see us, we don't know what that really means he saw. Like, was he seeing a vision? Was he seeing something else? Was he seeing them? I mean, Severian himself sees everybody else and himself as transparent somehow, right? So he's already not seeing himself the right way. What does that mean he actually saw? I don't know. I mean, but what he's saying about Hildegrin here could just be true of all of them at the moment. Yeah. Um... Yeah, why should Hildegrin look different to old Severian and than ours? I, I don't know. And, you know, what way? Uh, I don't know. Uh, again, uh, this implies maybe something particular about Hildegrin. Yeah, and that's the one thing I wonder. Like, pulling it out like this is highlighting that there is something else about Hildegrin going on. I mean, like, the fact that Hildegrin was able to say, oh yeah, I'm going to go find the witch who can help us time travel and go find yeah. this ancient old wise man. I mean, that's weird. That that shows yeah. a whole lot of other stuff going on. So who knows He's his own what else. wizard, isn't he? Yeah, yeah. yep, yep. Who knows what else he's doing? Hildegrin. Um, <laughs> maybe uh, Hildegrin looks peculiar as he intermingles with the people in the space from another time. Uh, I don't know. Yeah, could be that too. But anyway, uh, Hildegrin grabs him, grabs grabs him, but he, he can't get Apu Punjo under control. And Apu can't break his grip. I mean, I mean he was dead until a moment ago. Uh, speaking <laughs> of which, do you think Wolf had considered the reasonable uh, motivation that, that because he, he knows who, Wolf knows who Apu Punjo is here. And mm -hmm. does Apu Punjo recognize Hildegrin and know what's coming. Cause, cause Eidolon Severian, who's escaped the, the tomb, he knows what's coming. If this is Severian having been resurrected, then he should know what's coming. Yeah. But that now we're getting into traditional time travel paradox, right? Of right. like, can you change something that happened in the past and whatnot. Right. This book doesn't work unless you can, <laughs> but um, <laughs> at least I don't think so. But it's a good question because it, if he does know what's coming, then it makes everything that's about to happen in this moment, basically premeditated in a sort of yeah. literal way. Like Apu Punchau knows what's going to happen and he's doing this to help Severian understand eventually what, he is or something like that. I don't know. I don't know. I mean that now we're getting confused or I'm getting confused over <laughs> who knows what and who's manipulating who at what time yeah. and all that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, Hildegrin calls for Severian to come over and help him. 
Right. Svarian says, I do not know why I responded. Certainly, I no longer consciously desired to serve Vodalus and his purposes. Perhaps it was the lingering effect of the Alzabo, or only the memory of Hildegrin's rowing Dorcas and me across the Lake of Birds. Uh, this final part of the story, the end of the chapter and the end of the book are about a page away. It, it's, it looks like we're deep into it, but there's less than a page of text to go. Yeah. And, and Severian tries to, to push the villagers out of the way. But even though Severian figures they can't see him, one of their random blows caught the side of his head and knocked him to his knees. So he gets up. He can't see Apupon Chow. And instead, there were two Hildegrins, one who grappled with me, one who fought something invisible. Wildly, I threw off the first and tried to come to the aid of the second. So here, immediately, he's in the situation that he said Apupunchao was, where he's like, I didn't know exactly what Hildegrin, what Apupunchao saw when he looked at Hildegrin. Mm -hmm. Well, now he's looking at Hildegrin and he's like, there were two of you. <laughs> and, and so... Maybe what we're seeing is two different timelines, right? Maybe we're seeing overlapping timelines or or different possibilities at the same time. Well, I think um, I think I think what he's saying is he see what he is he's seeing he's seeing the the event from two different sides, one from himself and one from Apapunchaus. Yeah. So there's right, one right, right, there's right, right. that's grappling with him. Oh no, no. And then there's another one that he can see who is fighting something invisible so that he's, that's our Severians from the point of view. And yeah. So it's not that there are two Hildegrins. There's two perspectives on Hildegrin. Right. That we're looking at. Yeah. And that I think is, is right. And except when he says this next part and he says, wildly, I threw off the first and tried to come to the aid of the second. That's weird. But the thing about Apupuchau is probably having the same event. Right. Yeah. And it's, it's a weird moment where he's, I think what happened there is that sentence is it's got two parts, right? But it's actually got like, it's two different people saying different parts of the sentence. <laughs> like <laughs> I threw off the first, that would be Apu Punchow, or I threw off the first one, that's Apple Punchow, but then the second part, and I came to the help of the other, that's Arsevarian saying that going to try and help Apu Punchow. Um, so that makes the most sense. And we actually, we're going to see that exact same thing happen again in Earth of the New Sun when Severian's mind meshes with Sidero just a little bit when he he wears him. Um, and we see the same kind of thing happen where in the same like sentence, he's like, I fought myself, like I grabbed my own arm and I did all this because he's he's thinking as Sidero and as Severian at the same time. Right. And yeah, I think that's probably the best way to understand those couple of sentences right there. Yeah. Yeah. So what happens is he throws off <laughs> Hildegren and comes to the aid of himself, you know, with, as confused as that is. But that, my friends, is that. That's the end of Apupunchao. That's the last we're going to hear of Hildegren in this book. Yep. And he gets close to him, right? That's also him running towards Apupunchao, right? That's right. him going even closer to the one that if he gets closer to him, supposedly some kind of explosion or something is going to happen. Some type of annihilation, right? Yep. Yep. Um, Severian is going to clarify what happens here in the next volume and sort of later. He's going to note that Hildegrin died 
although it never says whether there was a body and what it looked like. I, I would like that. He also says that the witches flee, and he says at the end of Citadel of Autark, the last chapter, that at last he knows why the witches fled. So um, let's finish off the events here, and then we'll talk about what Severian clarifies later, what happened, and the implications of all that. Okay. So uh, Severian just recovers after what happened, after whatever happened to Hildegrand happened, and after the witches have fled for whatever reason, and he's brought back by Dorcas calling his name. Severian! Rain beating upon my upturned face awakened me. Big drops of cold rain that stung like hail. Thunder rolled across the pampas. For a moment, I thought I'd gone blind. Then a flash of lightning showed me wind-lashed grass and tumbled stones. Uh, but we do have information on this event. If things happen to Apopunchau as we saw them in Earth the New Sun, uh, and it, um, I, don't, I personally don't think it's necessary, but it doesn't mean it's not true, and there's in all likelihood it is true. If this Apopunchau's past is like what we see in Earth the New Sun, then Severian died on Zadkiel's ship, and Zadkiel created an Eidolon and a Quaster from him, and he maintained him until he's substantial enough to survive on his own. So this Apupunja would be an Equaster in that case. And in Earth of the New Sun, we are told by the Hyrodules, you came too near your double once, you know. That was here in this poor uh, town of stones. Then he was gone, and only you remained. Our Eidolons are always of the dead. Have you not wondered why? Be warned. <laughs> they, they, have a, they have a rule. Apparently they can make Eidolons of living people, but it's uh, too dangerous because they can run into each other. Mm -hmm. But it seems that if an Eidolon comes near to an actual, then they are eliminated. Uh, and I don't know if there is some kind of version history. If Severian had remained in the tomb when Apopuncha was resurrected, would both of them have been obliterated? I don't know. Remember, it's night when Severian conducted the seance with the witches, and it was probably night when Apopunchao walked out of his tomb. In Earth of the New Sun, Severian knows the new st sun star will soon shine in the night sky. There's no reference uh, to torches, but this just seems likely that this parade with the shaman is at midnight or early morning ceremony, and he hears Dorcas call his name again, and, and I think this event is intended to be the Inti Rema, the, the festival that takes place on the southern winter solstice. And that this is the origin of the founding of the Inti religion. And if, if it is, then there's no mention of Severian getting it on with local girls. But Inti is said yeah. to be the ancestor of particularly the Inca Empire's aristocracy, as well as the Inca people. But very directly the aristocracy and royal family. And the emperor was the son of Inti. And we often ask why Severian didn't have children. Well, you know, maybe he did. In, in my opinion, it, it's strongly implied that he did in the play. Now, we come to the final mystery, Craig. Severian starts to push himself up to sit or stand and his hand falls on some cloth in the mud, and it is, quote, a long, narrow strip of silk tipped 
with tassels. Uh, he, he doesn't mention this co the color, and honestly, when I first read this, I thought it had belonged to the Autark and that he had been nearby looking on. But in fact, it's a pelerine. Either a pelerine yep. member was just here or has been here, or maybe the witches are pelerines or are infiltrating the pelerines. Definitely, there was something witchy about that Domicella in the Cathedral of the Claw. I, I've noted that Agia has some witchy allusions in the text, and she knows a lot about the religion of the New Sun and an interest in it. Uh, I don't know. After we fi finish this, let, let's cover that conversation with Syriaca so we can understand more. Okay. Um, Dorcas calls his name again, uh, this time in terror, and by a flash of lightning, he can see Dorcas's silhouette on the roof of the palace, and he says, I'm down here, and he circles the palace and gets to the steps and climbs to the roof, and their destriers are gone. He, he says their mounts were gone, and so are the witches. And at the end of Citadel of the Autark, uh, Severian says he knows why they fled, but I'm not sure, still, honestly, why they fled. Maybe because they now realize that this guy they were playing to abduct was the new son. <laughs> um, it's, it's just Dorcas there, by herself, stooped over Jolinta's corpse. Corpse, yeah. Yeah, and now Severian can see what probably most readers have known all along. It's the waitress in the cafe and that's yeah. that served breakfast to Severian and Talos and Baldenders. And whether she died from the events of Hildegrand or that she perished faster than the Kameyan anticipated, I don't know. It had been washed clean of beauty. In the final reckoning, there is only love, only that divinity, that we are capable only of being what we are remains our unforgivable sin. Hmm. That's beautiful, Craig. But I only partially understand how <laughs> that's that's one of the most quoted lines of the book that you see like all over the place. But yeah, no, it's like what in this moment, what exactly what exactly does does that mean? Um and why is it an unforgivable sin, especially if that's love that yeah. comes through? That's the weird part to me, is that you know, he sees her sad, ugly, disheveled, a corpse, but he says he loves her. But then he says, that's a sin. We can be only what we are. We would have thought yeah. the sin would be all the other stuff. But but I don't know. Maybe that's Severian's problem, um, that he doesn't recognize exactly. Even though he says he loves her now, he doesn't really internalize it yet and says something that just doesn't quite get it. Maybe. I don't know. Unless it's also just a little bit of an ironic thing of saying it's an unforgivable sin when, of course, you know, it it's the most forgivable thing because everyone <laughs> is just what they are. Um, yeah. There's well, lots of yeah, ways but, to read that, but, but to be unforgivable yeah. means that there's no salvation from it. There's no way to get around it. So that's what I think. In, yeah. in this case, uh, Jolenta wanted to be someone different than the yeah. waitress in, in Nessus. And she wanted to her, she wanted to become a something that was totally different. The old, the old was passed away. This there's only this thing that Talos yeah. created. So in that sense, yeah, I, okay, I get that. I get that. But in the final reckoning, there is only love, only that divinity. Uh, um, this is a, a shot. Uh, I, I think. I think Jolenta is uh, is kind of a, a, a warning tale about seeking 
only to be desired for desire's sake. Uh, yeah. I think Wolf is using Jolenta to explore the nature of, say, porn and, and the e-girls you can now hardly avoid on Instagram and TikTok. Every time Severian talks about Jolenta, he's considering love and desire and how they're connected. Mm. That, yeah. that love cannot be extracted from desire. And I think there's something to that in Severian's relationship with his mother and his mother's relationship with all the women that Severian encounters. But Jolinta is desire for desire's sake. She doesn't want to love or be loved. She only wants to be desired. And that's yeah. her tragedy. Yeah, that makes sense. I like that because it, it moves from that surface uh, thing about beauty to something yeah, a little more complex. I like it. I like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that, and that's, that's the ending of uh, the narrative here, right? All we yeah. got left is his denouement, his, his, his escape out of here. Yeah. So he says, here I pause again, having taken you reader from town to town, from the little mining village of Saltus to the desolate stone town, whose very name had long ago been lost among the whirling years. Saltus was for me the gateway to the world beyond the city imperishable. So too the stone town was a gateway, a gateway to the mountains I had glimpsed through its ruined arches. For a long way thereafter I was to journey among their gorges and fastnesses, their blind eyes and brooding faces. Mm. Here I pause. If you wish to walk no farther with me, reader, I do not blame you. It is no easy road. Their blind eyes and their brooding faces. It's a cool so, line. It's a very yeah, cool line. Yeah. Well, as I've said uh, so many times, I consider this volume and the one before it to be just really super highly structured. Mm -hmm. I, I think the, the beginning and the endings of each are supposed to echo each other. I think the. He calls it this, out right there. Yeah. 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 I think that the end of this one is supposed to echo the beginning of the first. You know, it's a fugue. Uh, the play sits in the middle of the original three. Uh, book manuscript. We're, we're going to lose a little bit of, of that intentional structure as, uh, you know, Wolf patches up the third volume with structure and puts together the fourth volume from the remnants of the, of the end of the third. But here, he, and, and in the previous volume, for all the appearances of that the plot is just meandering randomly, I, I I just really see this highly intentioned structure and it entices me to try to see through it to an actual hidden plot. Yeah. And, and one thing I, I had to say, it's not forcing it. Like sometimes people will be like that and they're like, Oh, that's sort of artificial and English. Mm -hmm. But in fact, oddly enough, I was just reading some interview, an old interview with Frank Herbert about the Dune books. And he was talking about when he was writing the original uh, like three. And then when he was thinking about the six, he was thinking more in terms of like you mentioned fugue, but he was talking about more as a kind of musical structure overall. And then the themes came after that, mm -hmm. like he was talking about how he wanted Dune to sort of go in this one sort of pattern where things start to, to get organized into Paul Mwadib and, and everything starts to come to culmination with him becoming closer to the emperor. But then he wanted Dune Messiah and children of Dune to take that apart, to be like the opposite. And it wasn't, he, so he said he laid out this pattern of like things coming to a unification and then the opposite would happen in the next one. So it was like crescendo and then decrescendo. Um, and then he did the same thing with 
the last books as well, that he kind of had this intention of just thinking about like sort of abstract structure first. And I don't know that that's exactly what Wolf's doing here, but it just struck me that that's, especially with books like this, where there's a whole lot of what, you know, seem more like picaresque with like random encounters and whatnot, but there is that kind of more pattern structure to it that, uh, that really is going on. Yeah. We'll yeah. see if that sticks with sword, but I mean, um, yeah, I agree with you that I think that shadow and claw really both do follow a certain kind of, of very similar pattern. Yeah. 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 And, uh, you know, we, this is all ended just rather abruptly and weirdly, but, um, I think what we can talk about what happens here and, and shortly after as explained by Severian to Syriaca at a costume party, more masks as they make out in the sort of the lictor. Yeah. yeah. So he tells Syriaca, he says on the way here, we I'll explain some other time who I was traveling with. Um, <laughs> you won't get that yeah. to that Severian since you're yeah. supposed to be executing this woman. I, I don't suppose you should expect to get that chance. Yeah. Yeah. But then he says, we fell in with a witch and her famula and her client who had come to a certain place to re-inspirit the body of a man long dead. Uh, famula is just the feminine form of a familiar. And if you believe that Marin is Severian, Severian's sister, then this is a pairing between Severian and Marin because Severian played the familiar of the Inquisitor in the play. Hmm. So who is Severian's command? Interesting. But it also... Just the the basic thing that then the Cumaean is who he identifies here as a witch, and we were just talking about you know how do we I sort of fit the Cumaean into the other categories that we have? He straight out calls her a witch, and then Marin is her familiar. Like that's a very odd. That I got to admit in the chapter I don't ever really get that vibe. Like really? she says at one time, does it make sense though? She's like her. Yeah, assistance. I mean, I guess. It, yeah, right? assistant definitely I can see. For some reason, familiar always makes me think of, and maybe this like is a demon new, spirit. Yeah, two Dungeons and Dragonsy maybe, but it's like well, look, just they've your, already your resurrected somebody in this scene. Is it so hard to believe that Marin has been re resurrected as well? I guess not. I mean, but um, but yeah, it just seemed like she was talking about her more as like a wayward student or something. Cause the Cumaean mentions a couple times things about, Oh yeah. Marin always thinks this, she always thinks <laughs> this. which granted that's a subordinate kind of, or an attitude towards a subordinate. Right. Um, but I don't know. Familiar always just struck me as much more of a kind of pet. <laughs> so I, I don't know. Oh, okay. But that's well, why I meant date. That's why I meant Dungeons well, it's, like, it's kind of like an emissary though. I mean, really it's like a, can be a, it can be an advisor really. I suppose so, yeah. Um, but also, um, well, in in Wolf's Wizard Night, there is a witch's cat that is basically has an elemental spirit possessing mm -hmm. it, yeah, and and so it talks, yeah. and so um, yeah, I mean, a, a familiar can be all sorts of th little things. It is yeah. a, you're right about the subordinate nature of it, but I guess it probably in a, in a sense, um, uh, Odin's raven is probably a kind of familiar, right? Yeah, yeah. But no, and we talked about how in that last scene, you get the sort of the two groups of three characters, right? So, um, but yeah, who would be the Cumaean? Maybe it's not that there's, there, maybe it's not there's a mirror. Maybe it's that there's some kind of 
like inverse on each side. Mm. So if the Cumaean is the wise one leading Marin and um, the badger, right? Can I, Hildegrin, right. then um, maybe the opposite. Jolenta is the sort of extreme opposite of the Cumaean in that she's got literally no insight into what's going on and she's <laughs> dying and about to suffer. Whereas the Cumaean is, you know, controlling all these. Oh. I don't know. I don't know. Just yeah. looking at patterns, but yeah. So, yeah. So, Severian says, while he's talking to um, Syriaca, Syriaca. Says, yeah. our path lay through a deserted city. And when we saw their fire, we went to it because we had someone with us who was ill. When the witch brought back the man she had come to revive, I thought at first that she was restoring the whole city. It wasn't until several days afterward that I understood. I found I could not say what it was I understood, that it was in fact on the level of meaning above language, a level we like to believe scarcely exists, though if it were not for the constant discipline we've learned to exercise upon our thoughts, they would always be climbing to it unaware. Oh, so, all right. So I think Severian is, what he's getting at here is that from the Kameyan's point of view, she's summoning Apupunchao, old Severian, the new son. But in fact, it is Apupunchao who is summoning our Severian, and in doing so is causing the things that brought Severian and Hildegrin and the witches to the stone town to conduct this ceremony. Something like that. Yeah, it's like difference of, I mean, Aristotelian or Platonic causes about how they're, you know, final causes where the meaning pulls things forward. And then there's like the specific efficient causes that are just the mechanics of how you get there. Mm -hmm. And yeah, it seems like what he's saying here, that whole point about like, you know, that higher level of meaning is something, of course, we've heard before with Dorcas and him talking about how to how to interpret signs and things like that. But maybe there's something going on here where he's saying, yeah, I felt like I was part of some other thing going on that I couldn't clearly understand by the sort of just like telling the story. Instead, mm -hmm. there was some other purpose pulling me towards that, which I think is kind of. Yeah, like like what you're describing. So um, he keeps going. He says, I didn't really understand, of course. I still think about it, and I still don't. But I know somehow that she was bringing him back, and he was bringing the stone town back with him as a setting for himself. Hmm. Sometimes I've thought that perhaps it had never had any reality apart from him, so that when we rode over its pavements and the rubble of its walls, we were actually riding among his bones. Yes, he returned. And then the client, Hildegren, was dead. <laughs> Again, no detail on that. But at least we know what we never really knew until this point, that Hildegren died in the encounter. Yeah, yeah. And the sick woman who had been with us was dead also. And Apupunchao, that was the dead man's name, was gone again. The witches ran away, I think, though perhaps they flew. But what I wanted to say was that we went on the next day on foot and stayed the next night in the hut of a poor family. And that night, while the woman who was with me slept, I talked to the man who seemed to know a great deal about the stone town, though he didn't know its original name. And I spoke with his mother, who I think knew something more than he, though she would not tell me as much. I hesitated, finding it hard to speak of such things to this woman. <laughs> uh, so Craig Severian says he found it hard to speak of such things to this woman, to Syriaca, not just to anyone. Now, maybe it's just a figure of speech, but I wonder if there is anything about Syriaca that would make this story or, or what he's about to explain difficult. It's 
possible. Could also be that one thing you kind of realize when you're reading that chapter in Sword is that, like you said, there's some kind of whole seduction thing going on. <laughs> so it could be a joke about <laughs> yeah, you know, she's like, busy distracting me. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, that's that's what I was wondering. Um, but like, there's a lot of other stuff going on that he's not really right. talking. About. And it and, could also be that you know because these are are, are discussions of about people who have died, right? Mm-hmm. Maybe it's because he he knows he's supposed to kill this woman before yep. they're done talking. And it could also be difficult to talk about because he's realized at some point that Apple Punchow is him or at least is an image of the uh the man in his grave. The man in his grave and so he is totally aware that there's some bigger thing that he's caught up in, but he doesn't really understand how it works. So, right. Well, like, that- as we were talking about before from, from earth of the new sun, he doesn't really realize Apu Punchow. Well, I guess he, he, he does realize that it's Apu Punchow in the, by the end of this writing. So I guess, you know, some 10 years after this event. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But, but I don't know as far as why, what is it about Syriaca? If that, is really what he's saying in that line. What makes this about her difficult to yeah. explain? I don't know. I mean, she does know, she tells the story about the intelligent machines that went away and right. came back to teach us. So she's aware, educated in some right. way, but otherwise I don't think she's, there are any connections or hints that she's a witch or. Uh, well, like that. that's an interesting I, point. Um, and maybe they'll come back. She is a former uh, Pellerine. Pellerine. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. We'll get to. I, I think we talked about that uh, earlier. Maybe we didn't. But if we d- didn't, we will. Yeah. So, but he continues. He says, "At first, I suppose their ancestors might have come from that town, but they said it had been destroyed long before the coming of their race. Still, they knew much lore of it because the man had sought for treasures there since he'd been a boy, though he'd never found anything. He said, save for broken stones and broken pots, and the tracks of other searchers who had been there long before him." In ancient days, his mother told me, they believed that you could draw buried gold by putting a few coins of your own in the ground with this spell or that. Many a one did it, and some forgot the place or were kept from digging their own up again. That's what my son finds. That is the bread we eat. (laughs) So these people are treasure hunters to dig treasure left behind by previous treasure hunters. Right, which is, yeah. Yeah, that's the deep history stuff right there. Yeah, and, and sort of totally undercuts the sort of mystery of what's going on here it's like yeah you can find treasure there but it's just (laughs) leftover stuff that other treasure hunters used in their superstition so i remembered the old woman as she had been that night old and stooped as she warmed her hands at the little fire of turf perhaps she resembled one of thecla's old nurses for something about her brought thecla closer to the surface of my mind than she had been since jonas and i had been imprisoned in the house absolute so that once or twice when i caught sight of my hands i was startled to see the thickness of the fingers their brown color and to see them bare of rings. I'm willing to accept that Wolf is providing details to the reader to remind us that Severian is not just one person, but two, because remember this is occurring early into, mm-hmm. uh, you know, sort of the lictor, but the idea that there could be some other actual connection between Thecla and this woman, it should not be waved away casually. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So, Then the old woman told me there was something in the stone town that truly drew its like to it. In other words, the stone town draws to it people or objects with a special connection or association to it. 
Is, you think that's right? Uh, that's what she means, I think. Yeah. yeah. Um, so then she kept saying, you've heard tales of necromancers who fish for the spirits of the dead. Hello, uh, Father Aniri. <laughs> so she, and she says, do you know there are vivimancers among the dead who call to them those who can make them live again? Ah, so necro of necromancer means death and viva in vivimancer means life. So they, these are dead people who summon the living summon to the themselves. Living. It's kind of very much like what um, what Severian was was talking about earlier. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yep, with, with Apu Punchao was actually summoning right. him. Summoning him, yeah. Yep. No, she says, there is such a one in the stone town, and once or twice in each sorrows, one of those he has called to him will sup with us. Hmm. So the Kumean is a necromancer. The he in the stone town is the vivimancer. The he, she says it's a he, summons, but not the dead, but the living. Yep. So okay, again, the way, just point out, we've got that sort of doubling structure thing and the sort of inversion like right. what they're talking about and so it's kind of cool so but then and then she said to her son you will recall the silent man who slept beside his staff you were only a child but you will remember him i think he was the last until now then then i knew that i too had been drawn by the vivimancer apu punchao though i had felt nothing so Severian says that somehow the witches were not summoning Apu Punchao, but instead the older Severian has used the power, perhaps of the new son, to resurrect our Severian from the future. And all of Severian's people around him were only there because they had been resurrected along with him. So the question is, did he do it consciously or were they only drawn to each other by their personalities? And I think he, he might have done it consciously perhaps like the Kamean who I say can remember all her other uh universe iterations or uh you know maybe timelines in a mini worlds scenario new sun Severian can remember all his as well and summon them in the same way so Hildegrin's request for help from the witches and their seance all this was prompted by new sun Severian himself so here's another question. I think it is consensus that Apupuncha was annihilated, but maybe not. Maybe he's still there in the stone tower in his house out of sight since the ancient events in the stone tower. And in the same way, like the, the, the cat was that was, you know, with the Dowager of Fords uh, mentioned uh, in the antechamber chapter and in the short story of the cat. Maybe he is still there directing events in the same way that I think uh, the first Severian is directing events. And when the claw is present, that where he is, it glows. Yeah, what do you think? It, but it also does fit with the idea. I mean, we've talked a lot, like whether you follow the first Severian theory to the letter or even if you just think that there are like different versions of this i mean we were talked about other ideas about different ways that severian is sort of directing his own different iterations mm -hmm. or whatever this is a more concrete version like the severian of the future is calling himself from the past to become what he is now which right. is also what we find out the hierogrammets and the hieros are doing right they exist outside of time and they're or outside of Briah time at least and they're manipulating things within Briah or iterations of Briah to lead to themselves right they're they're manipulating their own evolution 
basically. So it's a pattern we definitely see in lots of places in the book. So yeah, it, it, it's Severian brings it up at the beginning of sword and it kind of, it somehow makes more sense of what's going on in that last chapter. <laughs> I mean, even like he says, he's like, I didn't understand the details of what was going on, but I kind of understood the higher meaning of it. Mm-hmm. This is totally one way to look at that yeah. and to read it. And it honestly, it's still, it, this makes a little more sense to me than any other <laughs> sort of specific way. The, yeah, the last chapter made sense that we talked about. I mean, we talked about how so many things about just like the mechanics of the chat of that last chapter of Claw just seem random or weird mm-hmm. or nothing's explained. Yeah. But here we've got a kind of you know higher motivation mechanism, and right. all the other mechanisms then are just sort of working out the best way they can at the time and i know that's not necessarily satisfying and it sounds very magical or whatever which yeah i guess it is (laughs) but it makes more sense as far as the it it is something that we've seen happen and and we get talked about directly in all kinds of ways in the book so yeah Yeah. i i I sense craig that you have alternated between calling me a first Severian fundamentalist and a first Severian materialist. So <laughs> I kind of like that. Um, yeah, that's good. I like that. So, but the nice thing about on this theory, you can be both. So well, yeah, as, as I evidence. So, but that's not, that's I, so much about, we talk about how stuff in long sun is like, Oh yeah. The outsider is just, you know, using these old myths and manipulations to get people to, do the right thing anyway Mm -hmm. i mean that's the same kind of thing there's a higher purpose and the specific details of the mechanics of how that happened are less important than that the higher purpose is being followed so well i think again i I think you know that 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 theme of uh, of the god this is not look people this is not a spoiler this is just we're talking purely at the higher thematic level that um that the gods on the world given time by, because they pretend to be gods, will become the god, mm-hmm. and uh, and that's actually not far off from from something that that C.S. Lewis also implied that the uh, that that all of these uh, that, that that the stories that the myths by pretending to be true will become true. Mm-hmm. Yep, symbols make us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, stories make us. Stories become true over time. I like it. I like it. So, so, but he keeps going. He says, Syriaca gave me a sidelong look. Am I dead then? Is that what you're saying? <laughs> you told me there was a witch who was the necromancer and that you only stumbled upon her fire. I think that you yourself were the witch you spoke of. And no doubt the sick person you mentioned was your client and the woman your servant. Uh, so Syriaca assumes that Severian is concealing the real story by mixing up the parts. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, he's, he's telling a, a, a true story, but to her, it sounds like a, a fairy tale. Mm-hmm. Yep. And that's because I've neglected to tell you all the parts of the story that have any importance. <laughs> Severian thinks to himself, I would have laughed at being thought a witch, but the claw pressed against my breastbone, telling me that by its stolen power, I was a witch indeed in everything except knowledge. And I understood in the same sense that I had understood before that though Apu Punchau had brought it to his hand, he could not or would not take it from me. Hmm. I guess the phrase Apupunchao had brought it to his hand means that he had summoned it to himself along with Severian. I think that's right. Yeah. 
I think that's what's going on there. So, and, what do you think? Of, what, what do you think of? Uh, I can tell you that what I, I might as well go ahead and just lay out what I think that means about him. Though he had brought it, he could not or would not take it from me. That, in my opinion, the Apapunchao is the first Severian, and that that claw that he carries is his actual physical blood, and so that which is why he can't touch it. Mm, that kind of tracks. Okay. Mm. Um, yeah. I mean, that's a, that's a good sort of mechanical cause reason for it. I like it. Um, yeah. as far as if there's a, a bigger reason for that. Um, well, he might also be, he would, could not, or would not, could both be true. He would not because he knows that, um, you know, Severian's got to carry it into the past as well anyway, mm, yeah. or not, maybe not that he's not going to carry that one in the past. He's going to leave it with the, with, with the pelerines, but maybe Apu Punchal doesn't know that. Yeah. So Severian goes on. He says, most importantly, when the Revenant vanished, one of the scarlet capes of the pelerines, like the ones you're wearing now, was left behind in the mud. I have it in my saber tash. Do the pelerines dabble in necromancy? And then... <laughs> he says, I never heard the answer to my question. Ah! For just yes. as I spoke, the tall figure of the Archon came up the narrow path that led to the fountain. So, so Craig, this exchange is really frustrating me. Do the pelerines dabble in necromancy? Was there a pelerine who came to the witches to summon Apopunchao in the recent past? Or are the pelerines themselves just the witches in, a, in another uniform? Or are they another, like a, like a subgroup? of the of the witches i'm yeah. trying to work out what the existence of the cloak means i'm not sure i've ever resolved yeah i don't know um i was also trying to wonder like is there something was there a pelerine somehow back in apu Punchao's day and that's what he's saying that's impossible that's impossible well <laughs> as if I, mean, I say as if as if it's that's actually impossible well, i mean <laughs> the know, pelerines that, worship the claw right and so it's where it's at least one of their primary icons. So they, it'd be before the Well, claw. it would be before the, in that case, it would be before the, he had passed off the claw. So yeah. what would they be doing? They'd have to have come there with, with Severian himself. Yeah. Which, as I say, I, I think is entirely possible. I don't think that, and I think it's, it's explicitly stated in the final chapter that the, that the first Severian's life, although it mirrors ours, very closely is not exactly the same. Yeah. So yeah, that I'm not clear on what he's really saying there about that. I that look, maybe story. one day I'll finally, uh, it'll, it'll click while we're doing this reading, but yeah. I've never been able to work out the meaning of that cloak and, nope. and, oh, and this implied connection between the pelerines and the witches. Yeah. Nope. I don't know either. Um, <laughs> What I do know for sure from that little passage is that that whole point you were mentioning about the sort of copied structure is mm. all talked about there. And I think it's also given that extra meaning of, you know, sometimes there are, there are patterns that are there because the patterns are meaningful or important first. And then the specific causes of how those come about come later. right. You know, mm -hmm. just just like a writer might say, I want this to mirror that in order to emphasize this theme or whatever. Right. Yeah. And then you figure out how to make the plot work, <laughs> except that here is kind of like saying, yes, that's how the universe works. And that's a totally different 
sense of causation than we pretty much ever think about nowadays. Though it used to be very great comment. Used to be important to say, like, you know, like in the Renaissance, it was common all the time to be like, well, the fish is a symbol of this, so therefore it would have been made to work this way, you know, and it's right, yeah. And that's totally was for for hundreds, thousands of years seen as a very, very acceptable um and in fact even better account of causation than just sort of physical causes efficient causes yeah. and it's not it's not in it, it, it doesn't it doesn't negate free will if you consider a, a god that a creator an increate that exists outside of time and space that oh okay well then if i'm gonna do that then i'll just uh let's just you know flip back through a few pages and uh, and rewrite this chapter and I, I still yeah. think it's another version of symbols make us. <laughs> it's it's yeah, just yeah. Once again, a more sure. complicated, spelled out version of that. But yeah, yeah. Wolf seems to be working out that sort of reverse cause and effect in so much of his writing. Mm-hmm. Yep, and I think that's important to him, especially honestly as an engineer. Like, right as an engineer, what you do is look at the very specifics of mechanical cause and effect and how how things work. But he was also fascinated with stories and meaning and theology and religion Mm -hmm. and was in a lot of ways, I think, trying to figure out how do those two things work together and looking at stuff from this way. It's a really interesting take for an engineer to have. Yeah. I think to say, yeah, the the kind of immediate causation I work with might actually be caused by other things rather than just sort of neutral physical causes of the universe, which is yeah, kind of cool. Well, I don't know that we have anything else left to do except go through these uh, translator notes. Yep. And then read a couple more books. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So the first appendix for, or I guess our second appendix, right? Yeah. The, the second one we've ever talked about. And then this one, he added social relationships in the Commonwealth. I think we've touched on these, but I don't, I don't think we've addressed them specifically as Wolf laid them out here. Okay, so he starts off, one of the translator's most difficult tasks is the accurate expression of matter concerned with caste and position in terms intelligible to his own society. In the case of the Book of the New Sun, the lack of supportive material renders it doubly difficult and nothing more than a sketch is presented here. Wolf says that from his analysis of the surviving pre-existing manuscripts from the Commonwealth, there are seven basic social groups. So we, one, we have the exaltants. This is a closed group. You have to be born into it. You can't opt out of it. He says there'd be gradations within this class, but there's nothing indicated about that in the manuscripts. Although mixed race exaltants exist, it doesn't seem that such people are considered actual exultants. Although it appears there is some status involved in that, even though Wolf doesn't go into it here. But such people are, you know, within other social castes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, as you know, Craig, I, I think that the exultants are definitionally hereditary since they're a race of clones, born as twins. One mm-hmm. becoming exultant, one becoming a kybit. Um, one randomly determined to be at the top of the Commonwealth social or the other having no rights even as a person. And also, Wolf doesn't note the status of kybits. I'm on record as believing they have no social status. That they're like uh, in a borrowed man, Ernie Smith. They're an unperson. Yep. Um, 
let's see. What became of uh, False Nekla after her death, Craig? That's an interesting question. Uh, surely occurred to Wolf in writing this story. Mm-hmm. Uh, female exultants or chatelaines and male exultants have various titles. Um, exultants have various administrative duties, although not in Nessus itself. Their, bo- their jobs and titles are hereditary. Uh, and let me say something else. We get no explicit mention of second-born sons who have to find <laughs> some other job. Yeah, I, I might cite this as buttressing my exultant clone theory, but the retort would be that Master Alton himself is a second-born son and that the Damacella uh, of the that. Cathedral of the Claw could be a spare daughter. So let's just not go there. <laughs> but yeah, so much of what he's talking about now, exultants are kind, pretty much the aristocracy, right? Mm-hmm. That's pretty much, but a kind of weird one. So yeah, they're, they're basically the nobles is kind of what yeah. I mean, It's only w- with the exultants that power is inherited, even with the autark. And Wolf supposes that this adds to the, quote, tension evident between the exultants and the autarky. But Wolf says regarding the exultants' hereditary power, it is difficult to see how local governance might be better arranged under the prevailing conditions. Democracy would inevitably degenerate into mere haggling and an appointed uh, bureaucracy is impossible without a sufficient pool of educated but relatively unmoneyed executives to fill its offices. In any case, the wisdom of the autarchs no doubt includes the principle, he says, that an entire sympathy with the ruling class is the most deadly disease of the state. <laughs> And the, uh, ex- he's, once again, this is... Which, by the way, is what we got. <laughs> this is a very <laughs> populist point of view, right? Yes, yep. And the uh, exultants in this story include uh, Thecla, Thea, Bodilus, Alton, and uh, perhaps, probably, in my opinion, uh, Domicella. And yep. there are some exultants referred to at the play. Yep, and just to remind everyone, even though Vodalus sometimes seems to be talked about as some kind of revolutionary, it's especially from the way Thea talks, right? It's just, nope, I just want to be the one in that yeah, role. It's not the shots. actually yeah. rearranging <laughs> society or anything like that. Yeah. So. so let's see what next in line are the armagers. Wolf says that from the manuscripts he has, they seem a lot like lesser exultants. He says the name, and remember armager is supposedly Wolf's term, but I presume that the actual future term carries the same sense. The name is, in the based on the name, they are the fighting class. They are yeah. a fighting class. So the knights, actually, basically. yeah. So 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 actually, Severian's own comment that he should not be subject to duels because he's not in the fighting class implies this as well. Mm-hmm. But the officer corps are not occupied solely by armagers. So this would, I think, analogize them to samurai serving as daimyos of feudal. Japan or something like that. Mm, yeah. Daimyo is a feudal lord in Japan, like knights of feudal Europe, but also somewhat hereditary. But someone could be entitled as an armager by the autarch. So um, it's not a closed cast, no. like the exultants. No. And the few armagers we actually see are, they're kind of goofy, right? Like they're, they're <laughs> well, the. Not all. No, Nicorette uh. is a. Uh, or Nicorite, however we pronounce it. Mm-hmm. She's a she's an armature. Lomer, of course, is an armature, and he's kind of goofy. Yeah, yeah, we're not very proud of the armatures. Not um, for the most Racho, of course, picture gallery. Uh, he's an armature. Val- Valeria is of the armature class. Okay, I'd um, forgotten 
forgotten that. No, I, I was thinking mainly Racho, the whole like, let's race, let's get into trouble. <laughs> right. so like, I mean, like, yeah, kind of like, I guess if you think of a knight as like just a, or an armored or the, the soldier class is more like, there's yeah, good knights and bad knights, yeah. Football players or something. I don't know. Then, then yeah, they're going to be getting involved in all kinds of stuff. I don't know, but yeah. Right. And obviously, in my opinion, Valeria, uh, is you know an assigned or adopted class you know mm-hmm. as for armature maybe uh, the class of whoever took over her care as an infant i don't know my perspective on valeria is complicated uh, we'll go over that in the chapter summary um let's see next are the optimates uh, wolf calls these more or less wealthy traders and these would be like medieval burgers N- not farmers but but city merchants mm-hmm. of the seven casts wolf says that they make the fewest quote appearances in the manuscripts although he says there are some hints that dorcas belonged to this class right because she ran a shop yep. that kind of thing yep. the, the reason we see so few of these uh is that in Citadel or outside of Nessus in the jungles or the small shops, there's just very little opportunity to encounter them. Despite having a shop, Agilis and Agia would probably not qualify as optimates. Yeah. Uh, maybe the innkeeper where Severian meets Baldanders is in this group. Yeah, and, and that one, I'm not sure if it's hereditary at all. Like definitely. Yeah, I mean, you got to get the are- money. I mean, I mean it's, it's it's a polite term, right? If you yeah. you call somebody an optimate or or sir because uh, to be polite, otherwise you just don't call them anything, yeah. right? Yeah. So the, the, then the fourth group, the fourth group are the masses. Right. And he says, as in every society, the commonality constitute the vast bulk of the population, generally content with their lot. Ignorant because their nation is too poor to educate them, they resent the exultant's arrogance and stand in awe of the autarch, who is, however, in the final analysis, their own apotheosis. Uh, Apotheosis, in this case, means the exalted or glorified example of the mass of the population. Jolenta and Hildegrin are the masses. They're they're villagers of Saltis all belong in this class, as do countless other characters. According to according to to, to Wolf, that yeah. this is the case in the manuscript. Calling them, calling the autarch the apotheosis, though, is one weird moment where this seems it it doesn't actually go against the medieval thing that's talking about. Because I mean, there's plenty of talk about the king being like the the manifestation mm-hmm. of the people or the nation or whatever. But at the same time, the autarch is not a monarch, right? We talk about autarch as sort of self-rule or something like that. So it's a different kind of, I, I don't know. I just get a different vibe. Like, like it, it seems like there's at least some kind of nod to this being like the autarch still being not just like the highest aristocrat, but the autarch being somehow opposed to the exultants and the aristocrats. Yeah. Yeah. I think, uh, the, the, the exultants, we're going to find out from Syriaca that the exultants can't stand the autarch, mm-hmm. right? And oh, yeah. that they would, they'd revolt in an instant if they simply could. Yeah. But he's got all of his shiny weapons. Yeah. And that fits with Odalist, right? Like he's, he's mm-hmm. just in resisting the autarch, he just wants to become a different autarch. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, he is uh, some, someone of a better class. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so. Yeah. Yep. 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 It, it's it's basically you know there's there there was always this myth at least for the monarchy in 
in Britain, where the the king is of the people. The ba- he is their representative, the representative of the people among the barons. Mm-hmm. And so in that sense, he stands in opposition to the barons who directly oppress the people and, you know, he's rising above them that, you know, if only the king knew. So in this case, that myth has become real because, because of the way an autarch is selected. He essentially has all of those people making up who he is. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So in that, finally, five, the next group are administrators of the Autarch's court, or as Wolf calls them, quote, the servants of the throne. Wolf says that these, quote, distrust the exaltants and no doubt with good reason. Unless you believe the Autarch was directly involved in sending Thecla to the tower, it was likely, I think, that it was one of these who did it. Uh, The class includes the Autarch, uh, military and the civil advisors and the secretaries. They're drawn primarily from the fourth group, the commonality. Uh, Wolf says, quote, it is noteworthy that they treasure such education as they have obtained. Wolf says that Thecla demonstrates a, quote, contemptuous rejection of her own education. We'd probably have to go over half of Shadow or the Torture to identify instances of her contempt. So we'll just leave that as a project for other readers. Everyone in the Citadel, including Severian, seems to be in this cast. Wolf accepts uh, Olten because, you know, he's an exultant. So yes, as far as respect is concerned, Olten probably gets exultant respect. But I suspect that maybe among the exultants, he's treated as an administrator. Maybe not. Uh, being the master of the curators might make him almost like an exultant who has to confer frequently with Father Aniri. And I am on record theorizing that Alton is a Baudelaire. So I still believe that. Alton is probably a singularity in the Commonwealth, though. Yeah. Uh, next, number six, the religious order. The religious are almost as enigmatic as the god they serve, a god that appears fundamentally solar, but not Apollinean. Because the conciliator is given a claw, one's tempted to make the easy association of the eagle of Jove with the sun, it is perhaps too pat. Uh, Craig, maybe you can help me understand the distinction Wolf is drawing to the Commonwealth's solar religion versus Apollonian solar worship. If I I were to grapple wildly, I would say that Wolf is saying that the solar worship is religious and zealous rather than philosophical and dogmatic, but I'm I'm honestly not sure. I was wondering if that was just sort of a monotheistic, polytheistic distinction, that Mm. instead of, like, there can be a solar religion where the sun is like the symbol of God period. And that seems like what New Sun is, but it's not like New Sun is saying, okay, well, there's a sun god and then a moon god and then a sea god and then a whatever, you know, it's mm, not, okay. it's not doing that kind of thing. That's what I think he's talking about there. Oh, okay. Um, Apollonian solar worship, you're not going to have any actual, obviously Hellenistic mm-hmm. connection in New Sun. So, so I think that's what he actually means there. Oh, okay. Like not Olympian. <laughs> not a, okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, but right. also not, not polytheistic. Like the idea is that they worship right. the sun and that's a sort of unique thing. It's not that 
then it's not that they're polytheistic. Like yeah, it's one god, one god among many, or something yeah, like that. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. Well, Wolf compares the religious orders of the Commonwealth to the modern Roman Catholic clergy, and they have various orders, but they have no common hierarchy. There is no pope. A wolf aligns them more to a kind of Hinduism, even though he affirms that they are monotheistic. Mm -hmm. And Wolf says, quote, the Pellerines who play a larger part in the manuscripts than any other holy community are clearly a sisterhood of priestesses, accompanied, as such a roving group would have to be in their place and time, by armed male servants. Again, I, uh, Craig, I would like some clarification in the implied interplay between the witches and the pelerines, but we're not going to get it here. Um, and then finally, number seven, the final group, as Wolf calls them here, the Cacogens, even though uh, we have had vague references to them as Harajules. He says they represent in a way we can hardly more than sense that foreign element that by its very foreignness is most universal, existing in nearly every society of which we have knowledge. Their common name seems to indicate that they are feared or at least hated by the commonality. Their presence at the Autarch's festival would seem to show that they are accepted, though perhaps under duress at court. Although the populace of Svarian's time appears to consider them a homogenous group, it appears likely that they are in fact diverse. In the manuscripts, the Cumaean and Father Anire represent this element. So, yeah, it's just like what we were talking earlier, that they that there's a lot of diversity in there um, among the Harajules. Yeah, that seems right. And, and uh, hierogrammets, probably, I would imagine. Yeah. yeah. I don't think Father Aniri has until this moment been outed as an alien in nope. the books. So mm -hmm. that's a gimme from Wolf. Yep. Finally, a wolf touches on the honorifics. He says the term sir should only be given to someone of higher rank, uh, like an armager, but it is widely misapplied at the lower levels of society. It seems to me that it's like the Spanish uh, term usted, where you apply it to show some respect when you're unsure of the status of the person you're talking to, or maybe optimate, but just a common person would be properly called goodman. Uh, Wolf says, or that is the translation of the term. Yeah, that sounds right. Yeah. All right. Uh, money, 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 money measures and time. Yep. So he says, I have found it impossible to derive precise estimates of the values of the coins mentioned in the original book of the new sun. Stop <laughs> asking me, nerds. <laughs> so, so remember, we have three books of the new sun. There's yeah, the, I also the just lost like I'm sorry, I just also like the idea that we get an appendix that's going to give us extra information. And it starts with the idea that, yeah, I have no idea. I don't, I don't know. Go, go, go figure. Uh, so remember, we have three books of the new sun. Uh, there's the lost book of the new sun, which might have been started by Kanag, whom we meet in Earth of the New Sun. But, you know, like the Bible, it might have other records in it as well. And then there's the book that Severian wrote, the one that Wolf is ostensibly translating. And then there's the Book of the New Sun by Gene Wolfe that we're reading so laboriously. And that's, I guess that suggests uh, that we've got these appendices here. So that yeah. is, is Wolfe's book. And this part of it, honestly, I read this whole little mini appendix here as Wolfe just kind of playing games with people. Where he's like, yeah, you wanted explanations. I'm going to give you some explanations of 
some minutia <laughs> like go into <laughs> details of it but it doesn't really matter you know it's like yeah like here's here's just some things that you know your dungeon master would want to know if he's just fleshing out details of world building, <laughs> but they literally don't matter and you could probably figure out you know what they mean yeah, what they, they mean without knowing they mean what they mean what they mean when they're when they show up right yep, i yep. mean and, and that actually does make a little bit of sense a, a crisis doesn't mean the same thing out, out in the jungles as it does in nessus mm -hmm. yeah right? and it doesn't have the same utility either because you know frankly what are you gonna buy so do we actually want to go through it I mean, yeah, of course. Craig, okay. we do not well, leave anything out. I just, it, this is the kind of stuff too where I'm like, it, I just feel like you got to really be pulling. Well, look, look, look. Just at least just, just read it and then maybe we can get to it. Okay. I so, in the absence of certainty, I have used Chrysos to designate any piece of gold stamped with the profile of an autarch. Although these no doubt differ somewhat in weight and purity, it appears they are of roughly equal value. The even more various silver coins of the period I have lumped together as a semi. Which now he's also saying that as the book is done, it's actually being like this would say that they're all talking about very different kinds of coinage. And so mm -hmm. money that's used is not particularly standardized and it's much crazier than. But it's silver. The CMEs are silver. Pesos yep. tend to be gold you know, yep. or look oh. like gold. Yeah. And then let's see the large brass coins, which appear from the manuscripts to furnish the principal medium of exchange among the common people I have called orichalks. The myriad small brass, bronze, and copper tokens I have called A's. These are not struck by the central government, but by the local archons at need and intended only for provincial circulation. A single ace buys an egg, an orichok, a day's work from a common laborer, an asimi, a well-made coat suitable for an optimate, a chrysos, a good mount. Ah, so now you know after you've collected your booty from your dungeon crawling, uh, you can go to the dungeon master and say, this is what I'm going to exactly. buy. Yeah. Yeah. So at last, when Agilus is negotiating for Severian's sword, he offered the equivalent of six horses. I don't know if a mount of the Commonwealth economy would be equivalent to a new car. In yeah, house. Who knows? Who knows? But, and he keeps going. It's important to remember that measures of length or distance are not, strictly speaking, commensurable. In this book, League designates a distance of about three miles. It's the correct measure for distances between cities and within large cities such as Nessus. The span is the distance between the extended thumb and forefinger, about eight inches. A chain is the length of a measuring chain of 100 links, in which each link measures a span. It is thus roughly 70 feet. An L represents the traditional length of the military arrow, five spans or about 40 inches. The pace, as used here, indicates a single step or about two and a half feet. The stride is a double step. There you go. Somewhere I recall, there was a description of the walls of the Manichin Tower being five or so paces, but I, uh, I searched and I couldn't find it. Yeah, I can't really remember some. But the most common yeah. measure of all, the distance from a man's elbow to the tip of his longest finger, about 18 inches, I have given as a cubit. It will be observed that throughout my translation, I have preferred modern words that will be understandable to every reader in attempting to reproduce in the Roman alphabet the original terms. <laughs> Uh, and he repeats the rest of the terms of his translation. So, yeah. Words indicative of duration seldom occur in the manuscripts. One sometimes intuits that the writer's sense of the passage of time and that of the society to which he belongs has been dulled by dealing with intelligences who have been subjective to or have surmounted the Einsteinian time paradox. 
<laughs> uh, this is a an interesting theory on Will's part. The common people and the terms that they use are pretty loosey-goosey with the passage of time. Because for so long, in previous civilizations before them, the terms never had anything but a local and temporary meaning. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, Craig, we've struggled in this book, I have particularly, with how long it's been between the start of this book and the events of Piteous Gate, how long did it take to get from Bodil's camp to the House Absolute, how long did they travel from Severian's encounter with the Undyne until they got to the Herdsman's Hut, and also how long has it been since Emar and Typhon and the Conciliator. Yep. But I also think this fits with the idea we were talking before about patterns and different forms of causation because it's almost like saying yeah at this point in history these people aren't concerned with the specifics of time right like yeah they're, they're, there's other issues going on that make the actual measurement of time less important than something else we just don't really know what that something and so yeah and at some time uh over time people just got the, the, maybe it was the language uh, and the way they live just got uninterested in precise mm -hmm. uh, definitions of time because you might meet a guy from the, the from the future or the past come walking in at any time. Yeah. Right. Yep. And then, in fact, some of the examples that he actually uses are huge. So he's got like where they occur, a Chiliad designates a period of a thousand years. An age is the interval between the exhaustion of some mineral or other resource <laughs> in its naturally occurring form, for example, sulfur, and the next. This is interesting. You cannot mine sulfur anymore on Earth. You have to extract it from dumps and buried cities and thus gunpowder and, and similar weapons are rare. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. The month is then the lunar one of 28 days, and the week is thus precisely equal to our own week, a quarter of the lunar month or seven days. A watch is the period duty of a century, one-tenth of the night, or approximately one hour and 15 minutes. As I said, I think this volume ends 29 days after the Feast of Holy Catherine. And I guess the feast occurs on a full moon, and this volume ends when the moon is just past full, but it might have no connection to that at all but it feels right to me but alternatively if the feast occurred before the moon was full it would be easier to reconcile with my timeline it reconciles either way but it would fit comfortably in that period rather than in the extreme maximum of my timeline mm -hmm. yeah yeah and so now friends we've reached the fable end of the claw of the conciliator <laughs> For, for me, it's probably the most confusing volume of the book, and we're not done. We have to do the summary to Mark paid for this volume. And of course, we have to hear from you about our errors yes. and the corners we missed, right? And the, the ways that we could have turned the die 90 degrees and got an entirely different perspective on mm -hmm. it. So reach out to us. Reach out to us with your compliments, your comments, your corrections, your complaints on Facebook, Reddit, email, Twitter, YouTube, the Masters Patron Slack channel on Patreon itself, via email or Instagram, however you do it, please do it. And as I say, if you're enjoying it, please tell your wolf-reading friends and bring them along for the trip, however it is you go about 
telling people about uh, and communicating with your wolf reading friends. Tell someone every day about yes, this right. from every day. About the Do not go, let the sun go down on not telling people about this podcast. And until you hear from us next, may the Moira favor you. You know, he should have given us a list of like all the greetings in here. That would be another good appendix. Like, how many ways <laughs> all the, all the nice things to say about the author. Yeah. Exactly. And saying ways to say goodbyes. Goodbye. If you want one in your pocket and a top hat on your bed, a hot meal on your table and a blanket on your bed, well, today's gray skies, tomorrow is tears. You'll have to wait till yesterday's here. But I want you to remember us as I disappear tonight. Today's gray skies, tomorrow is tears. You'll have to wait till yesterday's here. You'll have to wait till yesterday's here. we got a fair bit of blood from that stone i think we do i think we squeezed it hard so and we're not even done we're not even done craig i'm anxious to get out of claw the conciliator the cleansing yet again continue <laughs> welcome, back to, welcome back to the cleansing again we still haven't gotten out of the cleansing i'm i'm gonna take this as a confirmation of my oh hang on oh i already talked about that i talked about that or I talked about that. Okay, never mind. Um, and at this point, <laughs> oh, should we talk about that a little bit? Do you want to talk about that? Um, what's going on here? I think you've got more down below about Robert and Marie. Oh, okay, okay. Never so mind. we, we I know we get, we'll, we'll get back to that. So we might as well just throw, throw Hildegrin in the mix too, just okay. to get the So thumbs. at this point, Hildegrin. Sorry, I had to get the dog back into her. Her <laughs> stomach has been not the best today, so she's very... She she has a gurgly tummy. Oh, Zencaster did now is it it creates auto transcripts of things. Oh, really? Yep. In fact, that's right before I clicked off. It said transcript compiling or whatever. I wonder how I wonder how trustworthy it is. Well, I know, especially yeah. with like Isangoma and Fomalhot. I bet it's not. I wish we could send our old recordings through their little transcript i'm uh, curious i'm gonna go look it up the but well there are so many things now that'll do it that i can i don't know if i've got to figure out i don't know if i have any 
especially how weird Apu Punchal gets. I like the idea that it's Apu Punchal pulling Severian forward. It definitely fits the first Severian idea. It definitely fits the idea that in any way there's some Severian behind the scenes manipulating this Severian and right. Yeah. He's reaching it, out to him it, in some, in works. his mind and his thoughts yep. and his memories. Yeah. I like it. I definitely like it. All right. Okay. Hold on. Let me hit. Stop. Yeah. Let's go ahead and just do it now in case. Cause I, I know I'm running a little low on energy and I want to yep. be fresher for the very end. So let's, let's do a pretend ending here. And then okay. if we don't use it, no problem. Is that cool? Yeah. Does yeah, that work? yeah. Okay. Okay. All right, so... Um, Reader, we pause here. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we have taken you, Reader, from uh, half of this chapter to the end of this chapter. Oh, you hear from us next, and I hope it's going to be very soon. May the Moira favor you. And may you not have snake astral bodies with lots of faces and eyes and everything, confusing everyone around you. Actually, I'd like what one your of actual those, faces. Now that you mention it, so <laughs> very scaly. Well, <laughs> I've get a tattoo of faces on my back. Pretty good. Pretty good. good, Pretty good. Okay. We're back. At, let's get back into Re- the pattern of yeah. Every every board. week is Wednesday still okay? Yeah. Wednesday. Is there okay? Yeah, then good. we'll stick with with Wednesday. That works for me. And so. Apparently, it says Seattle is currently the only bid that is serious. So really for is that that's the year after next for 2025 yep glasgow next year about 2025 well, maybe we should plan on doing seattle seattle would be cool i like seattle seattle's where seattle's workable yeah the maybe i'm not ready enough for this you're gonna you're just gonna be a nightmare to edit this <laughs> just we'll cut everything and then take the last last take Okay. Oh, very good. Love your podcast. Been reading the series for a long time. Probably could copy them out myself from memory. What hooks me in most, but almost quite. Oh, good. I'm glad he said the books. I thought he meant like he's listening to us. (laughs) (laughs) Great. We need someone to transcribe. It's useful to actually record when you're doing a podcast. I should sit down all my little finger things here so I don't make noise in the background. I got too many fidget things on my desk. Okay, so here's what we're going to do. We'll give a introduction here, and we'll take these, because some of these are kind of long, but obviously we can't just read them We're all. going to start with the last words in the chapter. Yes, the last words in the chapter. But this is a this And then is go a very, on and talk for another hour and a half. This so. is a juicy, bloody stone, though, so there's a lot to squeeze out of that's, here. Oh, that's okay. so true. So, 